Welcome to Layers of Film, the show where mediocre people discuss masterful films the first Monday of each month. I am your host, Austin Killian, joined by my co-host, Big T. Big T, how are you doing? Hey, Austin. I'm well. How are you? I'm, do- I'm doing good. How was, the past- <laughs> how was the past month for you? You sounded a little bummed for some reason. <laughs> You're like, hey, Austin. I have to go to work tomorrow. I'm always bummed when I have to go to work. Yeah, that's true. Oh, man, it's been such a long little break do you get both thursday and friday off uh no we just get oh thursday off and then depending on the office that you work in you might get part of wednesday off or part of friday off but i only had thursday off oh that's crazy yeah never mind and then you have to just do full weeks of work until until christmas christmas vacation do you get i'm sure i'm sure you get christmas eve and christmas day off right so i mean This year, we're getting Christmas Eve off just because Christmas is on a Saturday, so it's being observed on Friday, but we won't know if we get Christmas Eve off until a few weeks closer. Dude, that's so weird. It's life. That's, I mean, I've had jobs like that. It's like, oh, nope, it falls on a Saturday. Sorry, guys. It's like, dude. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the good thing is we'll always, like, observe a holiday on an actual work day, but... yeah. Um, that's like the problem with being an actual employee. Cause when I was a contractor, I could take off whatever time I wanted cause I was in control of my own schedule. But now that I'm an employee, I have sold my soul. Is that something that you'd want to go back to as contract work? I don't think so. Cause as a contractor, I don't get any benefits. Oh yeah, that's true. And the way that my contract, independent contract stuff worked was, I would get paid 100% of my income and then I would have to file taxes by myself. And so like I have to, some of the like employment taxes fully come out of mine instead of like an employer paying their part. So being an independent contractor is nice because you have a lot more freedom, but it's also stressful with taxes and benefits and stuff like that. So, Oh, that's so odd. That's interesting. I never really thought about that at all. We have a guy that's a contract worker for us right now. And you know, how long has he been working? Like a month or so? Maybe a month and a half? I don't know. I can't remember. But we were kind of trying to figure out what to do for his Thanksgiving holiday. And I think we just landed on giving him both days off because in my I was I was kind of like speaking out. I was like, that's kind of dumb. Like I know I know he's a contract worker, but he's still like a full time employee for us. Like he should get the same holidays. Yeah. Technically he's like a contract worker from a different company. So that's I think that's where the kind of confusion was just like oh is the other if the other company doesn't give him those days off which he's he's from um the philippines so it's like they don't really do thanksgiving i don't think so (laughs) that's where the yeah it's like well we should just give him those days off anyway yeah because usually if you're like contracted out through a different company you will just observe that company's policy so yeah like i mean i don't know if the how the philippines like employment works but like here in the u.s if you are like a contractor with one company through a different company, you'll get benefits through your primary company. But for me, I was literally all my myself. Oh, interesting. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. So it was just, it was just me and the, the employer. Yeah. There was no company that I worked for. So I, I did that for like five years in a lot of different roles. And I just, this last year came as an employee. So for the first time in my adult life, I actually have health insurance. <laughs> I didn't know that. What? For five yeah. years? That sounds stressful because you got to figure out how you're going to get work, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, luckily for me, like a lot of my contract work was like pretty consistent, but yeah. 
I mean, that's the same thing that like Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and DoorDash stuff, they have to deal with that as well. They mm. are like their own bosses, but sure. it, it's really just a way of for companies to usually just get around like labor law. Yeah, <laughs> sure. That makes sense. Man, that's so interesting. Yeah. As a software engineer, like I can, I can do more like independent work and freelance and stuff like that. I just, ha, I'm not an overachiever, so <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> like obviously it would be good money, but just going out and putting myself out there to try to get work. And if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen and you don't get money for it, then that's, I don't know, that would be nerve wracking for me if I didn't have a steady job. That would drive me insane. I think being a freelancer would be pretty stressful. Yeah. I guess, yeah, a contract, but still like you got to make sure you got another contract picked up afterwards. Like, I don't know. That sounds like a lot of, like I get annoyed if I had like two different jobs in one year and I have to file taxes for both and like wait, wait on the, uh, the, uh, the W2 for it just so that I could get it filed and all that stuff. So the idea of like having like four different contracts, maybe if it's three month contracts each year, yikes. Yeah. It was, uh, it's very unstable to, to be a contractor because you literally don't know how much money you're going to make every year. You don't know how much you're going to make in a month. You don't, you know, get paid time off. You don't get benefits. Like it's very, very, it can be very stressful. So I've always been pretty lucky that I had fairly stable contract work, but I know other people, who it's, you know, you have to really hustle and you're like, I don't know how much money I'm going to make at the end of the month. So it can be pretty stressful. Oh man. Crazy. Well, how was your, uh, how was your thing? What'd you guys do for Thanksgiving? My wife and I do not celebrate Thanksgiving. Oh, what? Why is that? Yeah. Uh, we just have decided that we are not comfortable with the tradition that it's sort of rooted in, you know, indigenous genocide and all that. So we have sort of turned Thanksgiving into our own like family tradition, but we don't really like have a big meal or, or anything like that. So interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. See, I'm the type of person that just doesn't care. It's like, uh, I don't know. I just don't, it's to me, it's not even really about anything. Like I totally get where you're coming from. For me, it's just about food and whatever. I get that. Yeah. We do a big, um, like Christmas Eve dinner and stuff. So we'll, we sort of have turned the Thanksgiving season into Christmas pre-gaming is what I like to call it. <laughs> gotcha. Um, but yeah, we just have decided that we don't really want to celebrate Thanksgiving, but I totally understand that like other people do. So how was, how was your Thanksgiving? It was good. We stayed here. We just chilled. We had um, my honorary brother, Jeremy, and uh, one of his friends, he came by, and then uh, my wife's brother came by as well, and we just kind of chilled, called everyone. We all kind of had our different assignments of types of food and stuff we don't really we didn't do turkey my wife absolutely hates turkey so we didn't we didn't cook a turkey uh we did ham instead and actually the ham turned out great our townhome we have like a we have two kitchens and we had never used the downstairs oven before and we had we tried to get like cooking going on in both but the downstairs oven wasn't working so oh, no. and of course we chose the ham we chose the ham to be in the downstairs oven <laughs> and so it was there for like 2 hours and <laughs> it hadn't really been cooked at all so we had to wait an additional 3 hours wow it's all right i mean we ate it like 3:30ish i think so that's not like terrible but oh that's like lunch <laughs> no yeah that's well yeah i don't know it's well i guess it depends or whatever 
we usually eat lunch around one. You just start, started eating at three thirty and never really stopped eating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? We the rolls were done a lot quicker, and all the rest of the food. So we just kind of like snacked until the ham was ready a little bit. Gotcha. But it worked out. It was good. It was delicious, and we had Harry Potter going on the entire day. I don't know what it is about Harry Potter that just seems like a Thanksgiving. Oh, interesting. I don't know why. Like it's more Thanksgiving season than it is uh, Halloween to me. Yeah, I've heard the debate that Harry Potter is a Christmas movie. And that too. Or a Halloween movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see it as Christmas or Halloween. I don't know why. It was. It just seemed... Because like in the first Harry Potter movie, there's the feast, you know, when all the kids arrive. And it was just like, oh, it's a Thanksgiving show. <laughs> I don't know. That's the way I felt about in the, it. In, in, in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. We made it all the way to Harry Potter 5. Oh, wow. That's as far... As as far as we got, I want to try to time it next year. I want to time it so that we can actually get through all seven, no, eight. How many movies? There's eight of them, yeah. There's uh, eight. That's right, because they broke the last one into two. Mm-hmm. I've still never read the books, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah, we do Harry Potter usually more around Christmas time. So <laughs> like once it starts getting really dark really early and it's like too cold to be outside, we like break out the puzzles and we'll just sort of watch Harry Potter while we do a puzzle together and mm. drink, you know, hot cocoa or whatever. So it's a very cozy time of year for us. We enjoy it. Yeah, it's super cool. The entire time, like every every movie, I was just like, okay, like Callie, my oldest daughter, is like, none of these things are real. <laughs> like if it gets scary, don't worry about it. It's not real. I think she handled it pretty well. There are there were a couple of parts that she was just like, I'm going to close my eyes now. <laughs> oh, that's cute, though. Yeah, because there's uh, Harry Potter 3 when What's-His-Face Lupin, I think, is turning into a werewolf. And so I was just like, okay, remember. And then freaking Jeremy, he's just like, werewolves are real. And it's like, dude, Jeremy, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> like, I, like constantly just like, they're not real, babe. They're not real, baby. Don't worry about it. Oh, my gosh. That's so mean. He's just like... <laughs> traumatizing a six-year-old yeah if he ever has kids one day i'm gonna I, well i'm not gonna do the same i'm just like do you understand now you understand You're just like because i don't want to be in the freaking room for a half hour <laughs> trying to calm my kid down that's so funny i don't know put jeremy in charge of bedtime oh my gosh he he watched the kids like uh i don't know a few weeks ago and he was stressing out about having to ch- change a diaper for the first time Really? Yeah. We were like trying to show him. We were like putting on a, <laughs> we was like trying to, it's like watch the YouTube videos, I guess. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it's so straightforward. You just, <laughs> you just wipe and put a new diaper on. Like there's nothing really to do about it. But what if she, what if she poops? And it's like, she's not, whatever, dude, you'll figure it out. Wipe and put another one on. <laughs> yeah. Like You'll figure it it's out. Fairly self-explanatory. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's like things that you could do to make it easier on you, but it's still pretty straightforward <laughs> i don't know it's hilarious that's so funny anyway well cool yeah we had a we had a busy we had a busy month we also my wife's sister got married in south carolina so we had to do that whole thing that was terrible but it was good too did you go to south carolina yeah and you didn't visit just kidding <laughs> what dude that's like so far away it's <laughs> so freaking far away no yeah we went there that was that was good. We learned it was the first time that we traveled. We tr- we brought our kids. Um, that was a lot. That was a lot of work. Did you drive? No, we flew. But still, okay. that was like I was like, like they're neither one of them are old enough to just like have booster seats and stuff. And we got to drive places. So we ha- I'm like walking through the airport with 
each hand having a car seat, also trying to kind of like drag a suitcase along with my legs. It was like stupid, but <laughs> we, sounds very stressful. It was it was very stressful, but we learned a few things. And next time we probably go on a flight, our oldest is going to be booster seat uh, age, so that'll be good. So we won't have to worry about that again. But we figured things out for sure. That's good. The worst part though is just like as we were pulling into the parking lot of the airport. Salt Lake City Airport, or low tire pressure light came on. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to have to deal with this when we get back, I guess. <laughs> but it, luckily, it was just all the tires. It was just cold, and all the tires were a little low. That's That was it. Yeah, our car is so old that, like, every fall or winter, we have to get the, we have to inflate the tires because that low pressure gauge comes on every year without fail. I, I, I don't, that might not be an old car thing. That's, because I, I deal with that too. It's just the way it goes because the cold air compresses everything and you just got to get it filled up again to readjust. Yeah. I think, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But yeah, it's, it, it's stressful when you first see it for the season. It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah. Like winter has come. Yeah, and there's construction all over the place, so I'm always terrified that I just like ran over a nail and I have to deal with it now. Yeah, there's always construction in Utah. Yeah, dude, it's terrible. It's it's kind of nice because we just bought a house though, and they're like putting in a bunch of new retail places and stuff. So for me, it's like bring the prices up, you know. Yeah. Like when we're ready to sell in the next few years, I'm I'm down. Also, I wanted to mention that I watched Dune. Oh, what did you think? Should we cover it? I don't know if we should cover it. As a movie we watched for the podcast? No, thank you. Oh, really? <laughs> you didn't care for it that much? I thought last time you said it was okay. No, I mean, it's okay. I don't know if I want to dedicate more time to watch it again and then talk about it because I didn't find it particularly entertaining. Whoa, interesting. I, I actually thought it was very good. I thought the soundtrack was amazing. The soundtrack is phenomenal. What? It's Hans Zimmer, right? Oh, dude, I have no idea. <laughs> I should have looked it up, but I was I was floored by it. Yeah, the soundtrack's very good. It's a little overwhelming at times, but sure. it just feels like a two and a half hour perfume commercial slash trailer for the next movie. You're driving me insane with the perfume commercial thing. What? Are you kidding me right now? Yeah, like every shot of Zendaya is like her looking over her shoulder with like the wind blowing in her hair and like sand glinting it makes sense though because it's like in his dreams it's supposed to feel like weird and yeah i know but like you didn't need to do it 50 times like i got it after the first dozen <laughs> i guess that's true yeah i mean there were a few things that i feel like they didn't need to linger on for so long but i definitely thought that the world that they built was awesome because oh what are the two places there's arrakis obviously which is like the dune you know planet um desert planet mm-hmm. and then what was the place that they were... Kalaran. That they lived on? Yeah. House Atreides or whatever. Yeah, that whatever that planet. Like, it was... I really liked... Because those are pretty much the only two places that we actually really saw. I don't think there were any planets. Other planets besides, like, spaceships and stuff. But, man, they... Yeah. It. Here's, here's what I think... Like, here's what I walked away from this movie with. It's like, this kind of feels like the new Lord of the Rings type of thing. Really slow. You know, maybe kind of long or whatever. But at the same time, like really well shot you know beautifully realized i think the set pieces were awesome especially like the whole oh what would you call it like the whole base that they had on arrakis for the house of trades and all that stuff really cool design like of the architecture everything's just awesome and i just it felt like a an actual world you know mm -hmm. yeah i get that i think like 
the cinematography is beautiful. The world building is great, but like plot wise, it just was really slow to me and it felt like deliberately slow. Oh, sure. Like they were like, we can get away with a two and a half hour movie that doesn't really do anything and (laughs) people won't care. Yeah. Because I know that they're basing this more off of the book. I don't know how many movies they're going to split this off into. I'm kind of hoping that they just have a part two and they're done. I I think it's just two. Okay, cool. And that's something I will say too, is that I feel like if you're a fan of the Dune book, which I have also never read, I feel like, at least for me as someone who's never read it, it felt like it was a movie that was trying to really do the book justice. Okay. But I think... For people who haven't read Dune, it comes across as a little stilted because we aren't as immersed in the world of Dune. So I think that there's that to consider as well, that it because it's based off of book and it feels like they're really trying to do it justice and like respect the original piece of art instead of just make a blockbuster movie. I think it, for me, it felt a little awkward in that translation, but I can acknowledge that that probably maybe I mean, I don't know, maybe it's completely off from the original book, but that's kind of the, the vibe I got. Yeah, I don't know. I liked it. I thought it was super cool. I also thought that the performances were awesome. Really well done. I, I want to watch it again, although I think it was on HBO Max, but it's gone now. I don't know when they'll bring it back, but whatever. Okay, cool. I don't know. Oh, I guess that's true. Maybe we should bring up Christmas <laughs> because by the time that this ep no, by the time the next episode comes up, that'll be after Christmas. You got any big plans for Christmas? <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Not at all. We're just going to be in the area. Yeah, we already saw family over the summer, and then we saw my family um, a few weeks ago. So we have done all of our family visits, and we're ready to just sort of chill. I also hate traveling during the holidays. It's really stressful. Yeah. And so I'm excited to just be able to hang out and watch movies and do puzzles and eat delicious <laughs> charcuterie rewards. That's awesome. Yeah, I know we're we're staying here as well. Although I think uh, my wife's family is going to be coming up and hanging out with us. And then on New Year's, my family is going to be coming up. So I'm excited because I think, I think pretty much everyone's planning on coming, including the kids. And there's a few of the cousin kids that I haven't seen in a little while. So I'm excited to see everyone. It'll be fun. Yeah, it'll be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I saw my family a few weeks ago, and your mom gave us some Killian corn via my parents. So uh. <laughs> thank you, Austin's mom, for the Killian corn. It was delicious, as usual. Sweet. <laughs> we'll awesome. just do it. Maybe maybe you can ask her to sponsor us. Uh, okay, yeah, sure. We're sponsored <laughs> by Killian corn this, this episode. Um, we don't have any coupon codes that you could add at checkout. Sorry. Um, or promo codes. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I'm excited. I'm pumped. Christmas is upon us, but before we get to Christmas, we must talk about Pan's Labyrinth or El uh, Labyrinto de del Fauno. I don't know. Fauno. I don't have a good. I don't have a good accent anymore. I kind of knew a little bit of Spanish, but I, I don't remember anymore. All of my Spanish has Portuguese inflections. <laughs> that makes that makes sense. That was. Actually, here, I'll get to it in a second, but let's let's do the film introduction. So this film had a few release dates, but I just went with the first one that I saw. It was released May 27, 2006. The synopsis is, In the Falange, Spain of 1944, the bookish young stepdaughter of a sadistic army officer escapes into an eerie but captivating fantasy world. I feel like that's not super accurate as a synopsis. <laughs> not at all. That was on uh, IMDb. That's odd. 
at least on the uh, desktop version. Weird. It was directed by Guillermo del Toro, written by Guillermo del Toro, composed by Javier Navarrete. <laughs> I need to work on my accent. The actors in this are Ivana Bakari as Ophelia, Ariadna Gil as Carmen, Sergei Lopez as Vidal, Maribel Verdu as Mercedes, and Doug Jones as <laughs> as Fauno. I love how every one of those are like like Spanish, and then <laughs> Doug Jones. Um, the budget was nineteen million dollars, and the box office earnings was eighty three point nine million dollars. Um, and you can watch it on Netflix right now if you haven't seen it already. Go ahead and watch it before you listen to the episode, unless you really don't care. Big T, dude. What did you think of this film? Neither one of us have seen it yet, or had seen it yet. What did you think of it? Yeah, I mean, I went into this not really knowing anything it was about. Um, I was surprised that it wasn't as fantasy-driven as I thought it would be. Yeah. I didn't know that there was going to be the whole wartime parallel plot going on. So (laughs) um, I was kind of going in excited for like some really cool fantasy stuff. And I think it does deliver on that area um i think overall i I found it was interesting i didn't find it as engaging as some of the other movies that we've watched for this podcast sure but um i loved a lot of the cinematography i thought the music was really good i loved the like creatures like the creature monster development stuff so i mean i thought it was an enjoyable movie not sure i would watch it again but i it's been on my list of things to watch for a while so that i'm glad that i did watch it and i will say though We'll, we'll talk about this later, but there are some like really strong like allegories and symbolism for a very specific demographic of people in a very specific country at a very specific time. So sure. I think for people that have a lot of the historical context, it's probably a lot more meaningful and impactful. But because I only know sort of about the Spanish Civil War, like academically, mm. um, I'm not I don't get I think as much of like the emotional um, investment in it as people who. Uh, are, are closer to that sort of world event get yeah that i'm i'm a terrible person when it comes to like history even with the united states of america so like that's something that i i i always think about often it's like oh i should really read more on the united states of america but and then i, and then I don't but like going into this movie and and yeah the exact same i thought it would be more fantasy driven and all that all that jazz but really there wasn't very much to do with that at all like you said and it got me thinking like like as ignorant as I am on the United States of America, I'm way more ignorant on other countries. I'm a terrible person when it comes to that. And my honorary brother, Jeremy, makes me feel bad all the time because he's from Hong Kong and he knows more about the U.S. than I do, probably. <laughs> and so you're American. That went to a public school. Yeah, I'm terrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm a terrible person. Uh, scorn me. Um, anyway, I wanted to do a little more research, though, because I was like, is this really something that happened? Like, I, I have no idea. I, I don't know. So I looked it up a little bit about the Civil War in Spain that I guess ran from what 1937 to 1939 I think is what I saw something like that yeah it was like right before World War II yeah and what came out of that was like a full-on dictatorship which is crazy it's interesting it was just like an interesting thing to see because we had our own civil war and the good guys won you know kind of in broad terms or whatever but the good guys did not win in their civil war yeah fascists took over I was like that actually happens (laughs) obviously it does but I was just like wow that sucks you know big time and I guess the nature of the civil war is different for them um versus the nature of ours but it was it was really interesting to see that and also 
terrible to see that it ran all the way from like 1939 to 1975. Like that whole, what was the name? Francisco Franco or something like that. Franco, yeah. I believe, yeah. All the way till 1975. And I don't know if this Captain Vidal, is he just a made up character? I didn't look into that too much. I think so, but I don't know for sure. I don't know that much about, I mean, I know the general context of the Spanish Civil War, but I do not know. Okay. I I was also raised in the American public school system, so <laughs> any knowledge I have is extracurricular that I've found out for myself. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, because when I watch the movie, as as I as I do, I watch these films twice usually, and um, for the first time, I just kind of took Captain Vidal as like the big dictator guy, but I think it's supposed to be more of like he's just one of the captains and under Franco's like regime or whatever. Yeah, I don't I don't know the proper terminology. Yeah, he's he's definitely just sort of one of many of the fascists. Yes. Yeah, so that was interesting to read up on that, and it's like, oh shoot, like this is, um, this is actually based off of something that really happened. I'm glad that I know about it now because it's crazy, and also the, like the guerrilla warfare or like fighters. I don't. What's the proper term for that? The guerrilla fighters, I guess. I don't know. Uh, the like the guerrillas. Yeah, I mean, it's whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, so the guerrillas, like reading into that, like they were fighting pretty heavily. I th- according to Wikipedia, I think what I, from what I remember until like 1960, and there's like a whole other 15 years after that. that there's just like, man, that's crazy. Golly, interesting to read up on for sure. Yeah, fascists know how to do one thing well: it's oppress and suppress. <laughs> crazy, man. It was interesting to read up on that, and it was cool also to read because there's the whole you know the train scene where they blow up the train or like stop the train. That was something that the um, the guerrillas did. A lot like they they sabotage sabotage they sabotage like a lot of trains and cut phone lines and really like did a lot of work and a lot of damage throughout that time so really really fascinating to read up on that if you guys have seen this movie or haven't seen this movie um and didn't really know anything about the i guess that dictatorship and the civil war over in spain it's actually kind of fascinating to read up on so go for it i would suggest doing it i think it's cool actually so that was actually a question that i wanted to ask you and i should have asked you at the very beginning um, when we started talking about the subject, but did like what exactly brought you to wanting to watch this movie <laughs> over any any other thing? I've always heard, like we talked about in the other podcast or the other episode, um, I've always heard like really good things. Like it's widely considered like a masterpiece. Uh, it's considered Guillermo del Toro's like uh, best his magnum opus, you know, people say, um, I've also seen scenes of the pale man. Mm. Um, which, and I thought that that monster design was just like super cool. Oh, yeah. So, um, I've seen that sort of in pop culture and references and whatnot. So I've seen a lot of pan's labyrinth stuff just in the ether and everything I've seen is just very positive and very, uh, speaking very highly of, of the movie. So I'd always known, like, I want to watch this at least once because, I've just heard such good things about it, and the monsters look really cool. Um, but I, like I said, I didn't know anything else about it. So going into it, I thought it was going to be a lot more fantasy driven. Like I thought it was going to be one of those movies where the main character like moves to an old house and then sort of like falls into this like fantasy realm and has to find her way back home. Mm-hmm. But it very much mixes two parallel storylines together very well. So yeah, and that's. That's kind of the way that the movie starts. You think it's going to do that too. Like, oh, this 
princess that has been lost is is going to finally return and there's going to be this weird crazy stuff going on but not really <laughs> you're just like dropped right into like post-fascist yeah span spain <laughs> yeah yeah and it's interesting because like the movie starts out with Ophelia and Carmen uh, being driven by, you know, all the military or whatever to that house or that base. And you think it like it, it kind of reminds you of Narnia a little bit, just having to go to a whole new place, kind of like you were saying, and they're going to, you know, stumble upon this fantasy world and all that stuff. And I was kind of thinking that when I was watching for the first time. And then when I was doing some reading on this, actually, Guillermo del Toro was tapped to direct the first Narnia movie. And he turned it down for this. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So that, yeah, I had no idea either. And I'm like, man, I feel like he would have also been really good for that movie as well. Like that would have been great. I've been stellar. Yeah, for sure. Because his monster design is so, I love it all. Like it's so, like just the aesthetic to me is really cool. Yeah. That's, that's something that I notice as well. Like very much how Tim Burton has his feel for movies and, and very specific character design and sound and music and and the way that he shoots things, the exact same in my mind for Guillermo del Toro. Even if he's doing like big blockbuster movies, I guess like Hellboy and Hellboy 2, the character design and the monster design is very much the same, you know. And I, I, I really like that. I, I enjoyed that a lot for sure. Yeah, I think uh, I think the, the comparison to the Chronicles of Narnia is a really good template of what I thought this movie was going to be like. Yeah. But it was something very different. But I still enjoyed the end product, even though it wasn't what I was expecting. Yeah, sure. Okay, you know, I just want to jump into this because it was something that I... Let's do it. Something that I noticed for the first time when, when her mom gets sick and she steps out of the car at the beginning of the film or the Jeep, and finds that little stone, puts it up in the statue, and then the bug comes out. The audience sees it as a bug. I don't, I, I'm trying to, I've been trying to figure out, even from the second watch through, does she, does Ophelia begin to see the bug as a bug, or does she immediately think it's a, like, or look at it as a fairy from her books? I think that gets to the bigger question of, like, was any of this real? Exactly. Like, I think that that is a very uh, integral question that, you, the audience is left with um, at the end of this movie, especially because that, that end scene where she's in the labyrinth and Vidal comes in and Ophelia is talking to the fawn, but Vidal doesn't see the fawn. Like, yeah, um, I think it very much gets to that question of was any of this real or was this, her, was this just a little girl's way of processing this messed up world that she's living in and trying to find some sort of escape from reality through her imagination. So, I mean, I, don't know where did you land though um you didn't land i mean i don't know i I didn't really land because i i see both of them to me i get the feeling that it it wasn't real yeah that's kind of where i land well because because the fawn isn't there (laughs) the the fawn isn't there vidal didn't even see him unless that's just well no i i'm assuming that that was on purpose that the fawn wasn't even there in the first place plus there's a couple of things like the first time that I watched it, the fact that the mom all of a sudden got better when the, what was that thing called? The mandrake root. Yeah, mandrake. When the mandrake was um, in the milk and all that stuff, she all of a sudden gets better. And it's like, okay, so this this might be real then, I guess. And then when the mandrake gets burnt up, then the mom all of a sudden starts going into labor. Everything's totally wrong and she dies. And from there, like there's just a few, It's it seems a little inconsistent in a way. 
because it's like, I don't know exactly what to believe. And if he's just doing that just to mess with us, or if it was very intentional, where I landed is it's not real, that everything that she was doing was not real at all. And there's a lot of things that can explain it away because you can look at, like I said, the mandrake, you know, existing, like directly affecting the baby's health and the mother's health. But at the same time, the first thing might have just been a coincidence. And then the second thing, when she starts going into labor and bleeding all over the place, um, that can also be kind of explained away as, well, she just kind of went through something traumatic, you know, and she's like freaking out a little bit. And like labor or uh, pregnancy is very, it's pretty temperamental and you got to like keep track of stuff and make sure that you're not like overexerting yourself and whatnot. And obviously she was transferred at a very late stage, like the doctor was worried about and was upset about, which tells you a lot about Captain Vidal as well. He doesn't care about any, anyone except for the boy. Like those can be explained away. The creaking in the house if you pay attention to the fawn down in the labyrinth and stuff, he creaks all the time. And so in my head, that is just Ophelia explaining away the creaking. Oh, it's this fawn from like this this um, fantasy world. I think even before we enter the fantasy realm, you get that because the mom, I think Carmen is her name, she asks Ophelia to tell the unborn son a story mm. and Ophelia immediately comes up with this very fantastical, very detailed story. And so we get a hint at what her imagination looks like and what the way that she sort of moves through the world. And I think that that is sort of a further indicator that in a sense, she's an unreliable narrator, not in the sense that she's trying to like dupe the audience or trick them, but that she is experiencing reality and her imagination very strongly interwoven together. Yeah, something also that I read up on was that there were images of like, and I didn't really pick up on this, but there's images of like fawns all over the place. And so that might have also been kind of like a creation point of the fawn in her mind. Like even looking at the, like one of the covers right now, the tree where the toad lies in, that looks like a fawn. So there's just like imagery of fawn everywhere. And that could have been an easy point of access in her brain. Yeah, for sure. To create that character in her mind. And explain away the creaking. I think that like, obviously it's a it's a fun, good story that Ophelia thinks is real. Yeah. But I think that the the message of the movie becomes even more impactful when you realize as an audience member that like, hey, maybe this wasn't real. Maybe none of this was uh, happening to her and it was just in her imagination. Yeah. And, and thinking about that, because... Yeah, when she does return home, everything's golden, everything's beautiful. Her mom's there, her supposed father or the image of her father that she has in her mind is there. The fawn is there, all the fairies are there, but it's gold. There's an audience, there's all these people. But every time that we've ever seen the underworld depicted in the movie, it does not look, you know, fantastical or like not necessarily fantastical, but it doesn't look beautiful at all. It looks really dark and drab and terrible. So... That to me just definitely tells me that she had like an end of life vision or something like that. And that was it. And then she died. That's all there is to it. It does raise the question though, because I was, I was trying to look up. I just kind of wanted to see what Guillermo del Toro uh, said about it. Like, does he think it's real? He says um, that the underworld is real. That's the only thing that he says though. So you, it makes me feel like, oh, so maybe you can break it up into two questions then. 
was what she was experiencing actually real or not? And is the underworld real or not? You might be able to separate the two. It might be real, but I don't think that she experienced any of it whatsoever. You know? Yeah, and I, that makes sense too because I feel, especially as children, I feel like when we hear a story or an archetype of what a story is, we will often put ourselves in the hero's shoes. And so I think maybe the underworld is real and maybe Ophelia has heard stories about it. And in order to cope with the messed up reality that she's living in, she is therefore inserting herself into the princess role of the story. So, yeah, I don't know. That's interesting, though, that that's kind of what his commentary was, what he left it at. Very cryptic still. Yeah. Also, I I guess... Uh, Guillermo del Toro like it's hard for me not to just say the whole name I should just say del Toro it's a little easier to say but uh, he has like notebooks and notebooks filled with just random ideas and apparently he left like a like years worth of work especially like with this movie in the back of a taxi cab and left it in there but the taxi cab seeked him out the driver and gave it back to him and so he didn't lose all of it thank goodness otherwise we might not have seen this because he was already in production of it and he might have lost a ton of ideas um that wouldn't have made it into the movie but that kind of tells me a little bit that he because there's just a few things where thematically it doesn't necessarily fit the overarching theme like these are definitely metaphors each task is a metaphor for something specific but they don't necessarily relate together in my mind to create like an overarching desire for Guillermo del Toro to have the audience walk away with something. Uh, do you disagree with me? Because that's how I felt a little bit. Like it felt like there might have just been a hodgepodge of ideas a little bit to hopefully fit together. Yeah, I mean, I think that the three tasks that Ophelia's given are just MacGuffins. Like yeah. they're not really important by themselves, but they're just more like plot devices to sort of move her character development along. But I don't, I agree with you. I don't think that there's some sort of, I mean, maybe there is, but I don't think there's some sort of like coded, hidden, complex, connected meaning behind all of them. I think I agree that each one sort of is symbolic of something happening in the real world. Yeah. But I don't think that at least for me personally, I don't look too deeply into the meaning of each one beyond its apparent symbolism because I'm not sure if they are supposed to have more meaning than that. I know I know something that Del Toro, uh, specifically about the Pale Man, uh, he, has, he didn't really talk about anything else, but with the Pale Man scene, he was saying that it was supposed to be symbolic of um, his grievances with the Catholic Church. And um, that's kind of an obvious thing, I guess, um, with the pale man and all the imagery around on the walls. I, I mean, it, I mean, it's pretty dark, but um, oh, I wrote it down. Let me see. It was like specific. It was very specific wording that I don't want to mess up. Okay, there it is. According to an interview with Del, that Del Toro gave, it is a criticism of the Catholic Church that pale man prefers children to food. That gets so dark. That's so dark, but it's, I mean, it's definitely something that you can't just ignore uh, as a criticism of the Catholic Church. Yeah, I, I, I saw, I don't know if it was the same interview, but what I saw was that Del Toro said that he sees the pale man as a symbol of fascism, the Catholic Church, specifically during that era in Spain, okay. and of greedy, rich white men in general. So those are the, those are the three um, components of symbolism that I read up as his portrayal or like the symbolic meaning of the pale man. And I think that in all three of those instances, you do see 
fascism, the Catholic Church in that era, and greedy, rich white men who devour innocence and purity, as I think what del Toro says, through the symbolism of him eating children. Yeah, I I think something really interesting also, like if you kind of ignore the children part of it, which you probably shouldn't, but if you if you kind of don't pay attention to that and you just look at the amounts of food that are on there and the pale man isn't touching any of it, right? And the second one of the you know grapes is gone, he wakes up and he's ready to kill. Yeah, it's a trap, right? Yeah, it's a trap, but at the same time, it's just like if you kind of look, and this probably wasn't intended, but this is how I saw it, especially on the first watch through, was just that he didn't, the pale man didn't care until, like even though he wasn't, benefiting from the food at all because he wasn't eating it he was sitting there for nothing um once one of it was gone then he was ready to take that person down that took away one of his riches that didn't even matter to him in the first place so that was really cool to see yeah i think it's very symbolic of people who hoard wealth or resources to the extent that they will literally never be able to use all of the those resources but the moment you try to take even you know a smidgen of that resource that person will try to kill you and destroy you, right? I mean, you see that especially with like obscenely wealthy people nowadays, right? Like I think in the news recently, there was the whole wealth tax and Elon Musk was like freaking out about it. But somebody like went down into the math and was like, you will still have like billions of dollars even after this wealth tax that you're saying is like so problematic and going to like really making it sound like your life is going to be destroyed. Like you will be living the same exact life that you were living before the wealth tax. I think that that's very symbolic of, I mean, like Del Toro said, greedy, rich white men. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I always like to think that if I ever got filthy, stick and rich, I would just take, you know, a really co- like a comfortable amount so I could live in a nice, modest home that feels really comfortable and, and nice. Not something that's like 4,000 square feet or 5,000, like a huge mansion with 20 bedrooms and all that stuff. But just like a nice, comfortable home for me and my family and then put the rest into like charity and stuff like that. I... I'd like to think that I'm like that. I hope I am. <laughs> Who knows if I ever got to that point, how I would actually behave. But in my head, that's that's <laughs> that's how I am. I yeah. Know. Well, the good news is you probably will never have to have that test of character because <laughs> the chances of any one of us becoming as rich as any of the billionaires that exist is... I'll do it. Minimal. I'll do it. <laughs> Mark my words. Yeah, but I think that... Um, I mean, I just love the character design of the Pale Man in general. Um, yeah. It's just such a cool monster. I think it's very iconic, uh, very, like you mentioned, very symbolic of various different things. What I found was really interesting, and I don't know if you read this in, the, in a different interview as well, but Del Toro said that he believes the Pale Man is actually the fawn. Oh, I never saw that. Yeah. So this is supported by a few different things. So... The first is that that Doug Jones guy you mentioned, (laughs) he plays both the fawn and the pale man. So he's both of those characters. But Del Toro sort of talks about the pale man and the fawn being the same person and that failing, having Ophelia fail the test was all part of the lesson. I mean, it's also this theory is also supported cinematically because at the very end of the movie, and you mentioned this, the fairies that the pale man ate are actually present in that scene, which would suggest that the fawn, like they weren't actually eaten, that it was sort of um, performance for Ophelia to feel like she had failed. Interesting. Yeah. Because I never thought of it like that because 
the fawn is so upset when he finds out that two of the fairies are missing and usually he's really chill and comfortable and you know just or like really trying to put on a show that he's he's like a really nice person and and um inviting for Ophelia but then in that moment when he finds out that the fairies are gone even though she had said that she had a slip up he's like still really nice about it and then once he opens up the container he he loses it and he has a few moments where he really loses it you know and he's like bipolar <laughs> and and uh kind of goes a little crazy or not crazy but just gets really upset at her that that would tell me from that what i would consider an authentic you know reaction that he's not the same person but me i'm it, it, does, it probably doesn't even matter because del toro said that that's the way he sees it so even he wants to leave it up for interpretation so. yeah i mean I, I agree with you i think that I never really thought that they were the same person. And then I was reading up more about sort of the symbolism and I saw that and I was sort of sitting with it and thinking about it. But to me, that's very in character of the themes that Del Toro is trying to get across. Like the fawn sort of set this trap for Ophelia and then he is able to, you know, get really upset and be mad that she, you know, failed him and make her feel really bad. And then he uses that sort of manufactured guilt to then force her into obedience in the third task, right? He's like, you have to be fully obedient. Um, And the third task is for her to sacrifice her brother, essentially. So I think that this idea of the pale man and the fawn being the same when you take it into the wider context is very indicative of people in power who manufacture situations to make the less powerful sort of feel indebted to the powerful when in reality that bad thing happened you know ophelia failed the task because the the fawn intentionally set it up for her to fail and then he can use that as a way to sort of guilt trip her into doing what he wants it's very manipulative i would say yeah it's interesting. That's that's where I this is kind of where I feel like it's more of a hodgepodge of ideas because the toad was important and that to me was a metaphor for um just the stranglehold that the dictatorship basically has on the country and it's totally ruining the whole country which is the tree, right? Um in my head and the toad is the dictatorship and and Franco and and Vidal and all those people you got to take him out so that you can get rid of that stranglehold. That's the way that I saw it. And I I didn't really see anything about that with Del Toro uh, talking about it at all. But that's it seemed pretty obvious because the shots with the toad were pretty much synced up with the shots of Vidal taking out people and stuff like that. So um, and then obviously there's the whole food card uh, situation or rations card situation where he's just limiting it to one. So yeah, it's, it's obvious to see that the toad is a metaphor for him, which is a good thing to kill the toad. But then you get to the pale man and nothing really happens out of that, except for she gets the dagger to carry her out to the third task, which also doesn't really affect anything else in my head, except for just being a metaphor for what it is. But you know what I mean? Like the toad actually solves a problem and then the other two things don't really solve a problem. It's just showing you what it is. And so that's where I feel like it's a hodgepodge. I, I get that. And I think that, again, every piece of art, you can sort of interpret it and read things into it that may not be there. Yeah. But if you look at it from the Fawn's point of view, the first task is for, like you said, it's very uh, pragmatic, right? She's doing it to save the tree, to 
you know, protect the forest or whatever. And then the second one in the Fawn's point of view is to manipulate Ophelia into doing the third task, right? He wants her to feel so bad about failing the second task that she's willing to do anything to get back in the Fawn's good graces because... I don't think any of us would sort of sacrifice a loved one out of the blue, but if you're manipulated enough into thinking that you're a bad person and that you have to do this really bad thing in, in, in order to receive some sort of redemption, then I think you can see the second task as having a very clear purpose, even though it doesn't really come across that way initially. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That. That's no, I definitely agree with you from the second task to the third task of like the motivations. Cause I didn't think about that, but once you brought it up, it's like, yeah, I agree with that. That totally yeah. makes sense. Because why would he show back up again unless it was all, you know, designed that way? Yeah, it was all artificially manufactured for a very specific purpose that the fawn wanted to complete. I mean, you mentioned the toad. I wanted to ask you this because um, I think I feel like almost everything in this movie is symbolic of something else, which I love. I, I love that part of this movie. Um, but one thing that really came across to me was like the purpose of food and the symbolism of food, because I, I might be mistaken, but I thought that the scene where she's supposed to feed the toad, those rocks was sort of happening at the same time as the feast that they're having with a bunch of people. Or am I wrong? Is that, is that not parallel? Maybe it's not. Oh, shoot. Maybe it happens right before because she like gets her clothes all dirty and then it cuts to them and they're like, where's Ophelia? It happens really close. Regardless. It's got to happen. I think the feast happens after. I think you're right. I think. No, no, it is. I think she she he's doing something else or whatever. But when it starts raining, that's when she's like, I think she's already killed the toad and she's starting to come back out. And that's when he's inviting guests in to go eat. Yeah, it kind of cuts over to it. But to me. I don't know, and you sort of mentioned the ration cards as well. I feel like food is a very symbolic component of this movie, and I wanted to know, like, did you sort of have that same impression? And if so, what what did you think it was symbolic of? Or I mean, just again, I like specifically to the dictatorship, and you know, all the fascists and all that jazz. I think that the food really comes into play for sure, and the toad and all that stuff is really linked together. And then again, like the other two tasks don't ne necessarily sync up to the exact same thing, especially if he's talking about the Catholic Church and all that stuff, which is a little off topic in my head. But um, I, I do agree that food comes into play with that specific component of the film because it's just hilarious to me that he's <laughs> he's talking about limiting every family to one ration card Um while they're having this enormous feast, this mm -hmm. ginormous, like everyone's, like everyone's plates are like filled to the brim. It might as well be Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. And, and he's just talking about, no, they can only have one. And of course it's out of fear for, um, uh, families using an extra ration card to give it to the gorillas. Um, the rebels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's trying to like take him. Yeah. The rebels, he's trying to take them down, um, and kind of smoke them out that way. So, I don't know. I didn't really think too deeply about the food as a symbol necessarily like yeah. outside of just just kind of the stranglehold on the country and just really bringing people down like dictatorships do, because I'm pretty sure that was a big prominent thing in World War Two was just kind of starving people so that they kind of feel like they have to um, behave so that they can get anything that they want. Like I, I just remember reading up on World War Two and and just like when you feel like you are 
totally deprived of stuff, it makes you a little more vulnerable to having sort of a hive mind and following the dictatorship and just doing anything that they ask out of hope that you get something out of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. I think we've seen throughout history that food is very much used as a tool to get people to do really bad things or to prevent people from doing things you don't want them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, and the reason I sort of started thinking about the food being a symbolism is because it appears in a lot of scenes, especially the feast scene you mentioned, but the pale man too. Food is like integral to the to the scene with the pale man. So I sort of was thinking about food and its symbolism and you sort of touched on this, but like food is a material need. Every human being that is alive needs food, needs nutrients, needs sustenance. And I think that we see people use food as a tool to either harm and control others or as a tool to like help them and bond with them. So I was sort of reflecting on how food is used by people in this in this movie and I was thinking up a few examples. I think one of the first ones that st- stuck out to me and you mentioned this was when they're having that big feast as they're talking about rations and essentially how how can we starve these rebels out of existence particularly i believe it's the priest he is just like voraciously piling food on his mm. plate and eating and he's like oh yeah rations are fine they'll be fine it's not a big deal as he is very selfishly feasting himself and i think that that is very symbolic of, you know, people who hold all this power who are trying to are very hypocritical in the way they hold power. You see it in the way that the pale man uses food to trap children. Um, you mentioned how like the fascists are sort of giving out rations in order to harm the rebels. We see even Oph- Ophelia, she uses food as a way to harm Vidal, right? She poisons his drink. Sure. Um, which I mean you could argue that's a good thing because like it's probably a good thing to poison fascists, maybe. That to me is the toad. To me, that's the toe. That's the rocks, right? Yeah, she, and that's another way you see food is she uses the the little grubs to get the toe to eat the rocks that yeah. then eventually kill it. But then some good ways we see food being used or food being associated is like one of the first scenes where Ophelia and Mercedes bond is over her milking the cow, right? Ophelia sort of starts telling her about the fairies and what she's seeing and the fawns. And so we see this really sweet, tender relationship occur over food. And then especially, I think you see it very strongly when Ophelia puts the mandrake root in milk to help her mother. So I just, I thought it was really interesting to see how food was sort of used. Um, It's a very neutral item in and of itself it's just something that helps feed people sustain people but then we see bad guys using it for bad things and good guys using it for good things and i think that that's just very indicative of the the general mood right that a lot of things are neutral but like you said you can use it to make people become really desperate and then they'll kind of do whatever you want interesting that i i wanted to kind of um talk about because you just mentioned the the milking scene i kind of wanted to talk about mercedes a little bit Cause she is a she's a better mom than Carmen. The first watch through, I didn't put any thought into Carmen like at all. I don't know why. I just didn't really care. It's like okay, she's having this baby, blah blah blah. Like I'm sure she's gonna die at some point. She does, and <laughs> I'm just like okay, cool. And that just kind of happened. And then on the second watch through, where I'm really taking my time and taking notes, I hated her so much. Like I hated Carmen. I don't know if you kind of walked away the exact same way or not. Well, maybe not the exact same way, but kind of with the same feelings a little bit. She is really selfish and totally 
puts her kid in danger and into this kind of just crappy situation where everything's just morally wrong because she's lonely. And that's what she says. Like, you don't understand. Like, I'm lonely. Like, you'll, you'll understand when you get older. I'm, I'm lonely. And then, um, oh, I got a surprise for you tomorrow. And, and Ophelia is just like, a book? And she's super pumped about it. And she's like, no, something way better than that. And, and Carmen gives her a dress. And you can tell Ophelia doesn't care. It's like, okay, cool. Like shoes and all that stuff. And then Ophelia gets to go take a bath. And then she rushes her along because she wants to see her in the dress. Like she's very selfish. And then Ophelia's gone all day dealing with the toad. She doesn't know, but it's raining. It's cold. It's terrible out there. And Carmen's like, oh, did you check the garden? Did you check this? Hmm, where has she run off to? It's like, dude, like I know you're pregnant and you're supposed to be on bed rest and stuff like that. Well, not not. I did a quote unquote thing with my hands, but maybe uh, she probably does need to be on bed rest, but it's just like, I feel like any, and maybe it's specific to the times. I don't know. Maybe I need to put it in the context of 1944, but I wouldn't do that. <laughs> like I would immediately be getting off the bed and like, we got to go freaking search for her. Like what the heck? She's been gone all day and it's raining. Like she's probably freezing. Finally gets her back. She doesn't even like say, oh my gosh, like, where were you? Holy smokes, I was so worried. We immediately cut into Carmen being like, I'm so disappointed in you. I'm so mad. You're not even, and here's where the food comes into play again. You're going to bed without supper. It's like, dude, you are a terrible mother. <laughs> like, what the heck? It's, I don't know. I just think she's kind of a garbage mom. Yeah, I mean, I didn't put too much thought towards Carmen because I agree with you. She doesn't play like a huge role in this movie. Um, I would say overall my reaction towards Carmen is just sort of one of like uh, sympathy because you see from the very beginning that she is between a rock and a hard place like and I think I mean she definitely does come across as selfish and acts very selfish at times but to me I think that I guess her concern is like meeting the physical needs of her child, you know, making sure she has a warm place to stay, making sure she's safe, making sure she has clothes, making sure she has access to like the bath and stuff. Like, I think she's sort of very concerned about meeting the physical needs in a world where physical safety isn't guaranteed. But in her trying to meet those physical needs, she is spectacularly failing at meeting the mental and emotional and social needs of her child. And I think that's where you see Mercedes come in, where Mercedes is more about like that mothering figure, like you mentioned. But um, I guess I'm, I am a little bit more sympathetic towards Carmen because one of the themes I see very strongly in this movie is about how women, especially at that time, were powerless yeah. in virtually any situation. Like all of the women in this movie are reduced to very subservient roles. Like Carmen is simply the vessel that carries Vidal's son. Mercedes is doing all of these sort of menial house chores, cooking, cleaning, carrying luggage, taking care of a child. All of the other women are essentially like cooks in the house that, that we meet. And we see very much that like women are powerless in this fascist world and in this world that Vidal has created. And so while I do agree with you that Carmen does fail as a mother in many ways, I, I do extend sympathy to her because she has very little control over her own life. And I think that feeling of powerlessness is trying, she's just trying to do what she thinks is best for her daughter. But at the end, I would agree with you. She is, uh, hurting her daughter in ways that I don't think Carmen fully understands. Yeah. And I would probably be more sympathetic. Um, and it's probably is, it is true that she's trying to meet the physical needs, 
but if it is true, I feel like Del Toro should have done a better job at showing that um, instead of her explanation to her daughter of why they're there is that she was lonely. As a parent, if I was in between a hard rock and or a, a rock and a hard place, I would probably be like, we didn't have any food. Like she should have explained that then if that were true in my mind. She should have explained that like we were starving, you know, and we needed to be there. Yeah. But that's valid. So if if you know, like I could see your point, but I, I feel like um if that is true, then Del Toro should have done a better job at showing that because I walked away just getting really annoyed with Carmen. Yeah, and I think that's a valid point that like at the end of the day, Carmen doesn't communicate that part of her. And I do think that I mean, she's a flawed character like everyone. Sure. And especially that scene where she takes she's like tells Ophelia that she's not going to eat dinner. To me, I saw that as a reaction because like a scene or two before that, we see Vidal like blatantly humiliate her in front of the other house guests and saying like, oh, sorry, my wife doesn't really know like table manners essentially. And I think that action of Carmen taking dinner away from Ophelia is a way of Carmen sort of trying to um, gain back power, but it's a very problematic way because she feels sort of punished by this man who's more powerful than her. So in turn, Carmen is going to punish her daughter who she has power over. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know if necessarily uh, Del Toro was trying to make us sympathize with Carmen, right. um, but I do, I do agree with you that she fails as a mother in very many ways, but she, I also acknowledge that she's very powerless throughout the movie. And so she can't really do a whole lot yeah. with, the situation she's in especially like you said she's on bed rest and she's like literally dying throughout the whole movie yeah yeah like that i could sip like i i guess i can understand a little bit of like it's probably hard to focus on other things um i don't know it just it just all goes back to that explanation of loneliness <laughs> that yeah that kind of kills some of my sympathy for her just a little bit but um but that does bring me to like mercedes though like i think that she's the true hero of the the movie like she's awesome like she's one of the best characters for sure one of my um subtle details which i didn't really have a ton although maybe i should have was we see quite often and i didn't really pay attention to this on my first watch through we see quite often that she rolls the knife into her apron just in case like every time like she's really i wrote a lot for her actually because i kind of go through each character and write different things i didn't really have much to say about vidal i didn't have much to say about um Ophelia or really anyone else especially like the fawn I really what I come away with with the fawn is that he's just very unsettling but Carmen and Mercedes really gave me a lot and Mercedes is just like she's smart she's caring she's brave she's on top of things she's very mindful she's questioning like she constantly questions things and she plays along with that like that's a huge division between Mercedes and Carmen is that Carmen tells Ophelia to to you know stop thinking of that nonsense you know it's it's just fairy tales like you need to stop worrying about that and then kind of going along with Vidal because he says the same type of stuff but Mercedes is playing along when she's milking the cow and she's like oh really you saw fawn and then she says well my mom told or warned me to be wary of fawns which is definitely foreshadowing because I feel like the fawn was really putting her into a trap so I just feel like Mercedes is like she's one of the very few people that's actually on top of things and very smart um, throughout the film and constantly thinking. Where, where, what did you think about Mercedes? Did you like her as much as I did or not? Yeah, I really liked Mercedes. I definitely think she's one of the 
I mean, obviously she's meant to be like one of the good guys, right? She's a very redeeming character. And I agree with you. I think that we do see her display a lot of really positive character traits. What I really loved was that moment of vulnerability when she's talking to her brother in the forest and she calls herself a coward. Oh, yeah. And she's like, oh, I'm such a coward for doing this. But I mean, the brother sort of empathizes and helps her sort of deal with that. But to me, I really like that, that. She's doing all these things that I think a lot of us would consider very courageous, right? Like you're literally a spy and a traitor in the house of a fascist and like you consider yourself a coward. And I think that to me, um, I really like that part because it helps us, it lets us explore like what is bravery because so often we think bravery is like sort of running into a situation, guns ablaze, no fear, never backing down. But yeah, there are more subtle forms of bravery and courage that uh, maybe the world would sort of typify as cowardice, but we see Mercedes making some very brave choices sort of in the dark. And I really like that about her. Yeah. And she's constantly going to comfort Ophelia, you know, singing the little lullaby, which the entire soundtrack is based off of, which is awesome. And just always there for her and always thinks about her first. That's, that's another reason because Ophelia is just like this little kid that doesn't, she she's the one that's most caught between a rock and a hard place like she has nothing that she can really do except for these three what i interpret as fake tasks because it's not real in my mind and just really trying to escape it all in any way that she can that's not real with a piece of chalk writing doors on the wall that aren't actually there and mercedes is always there for her always trying to comfort her in her times of need I just, I don't know. I, I really walked away from this movie just thinking that Mercedes was like, wow, you're the best. You're awesome, dude. Yeah, I agree. I think she's a great character. Were there, I kind of, well, were there any other standout characters to you? I mean, I just love the character design of the fawn. I loved, you mentioned this earlier. I loved that when the fawn moves, it sounds like creaking wood. Yeah. I just, oh, the folly artist needs a raise for that. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, Obviously, like the characters that I have, the pale man, we sort of have talked about. Yeah. I don't think anyone else really sticks out to me. I, I really like Captain Vidal as an antagonist. I think that they did a really good job of making him sort of overtly evil, but also evil in a lot more like nuanced ways. And so I thought that that was kind of interesting. But other than that, none of the characters sort of stand out beyond each other for me. Sure. Yeah. What I liked about Vidal was like, like, obviously he's like super selfish and it's all about having a son. And you can tell that it really like even the dictatorship doesn't matter <laughs> as much as him having a son because his whole base is exploding around him and he's still going after Ophelia to get his son back, which totally makes sense. I mean, any father would do that. I think you would ignore all the other things so that you can get your son back. But at the same time, like he's willing to kill uh, Carmen for the son. You know, you'll do anything necessary. He says that to the doctor. Or was the doctor dead at that point? I don't even know. But... No, he tells the doctor. Okay. I think. I think it's the doctor, yeah. Okay. And, uh, and like, obviously, from right from the get-go, there's only one moment where he tries to put on a face for Ophelia when she gets out of the door and she reaches out to handshake and she does it wrong, quote-unquote wrong. And then that's it for him. Like, their relationship is dead for the rest of the film, which is really sad. But, like... He just doesn't care. But what I really noticed more than anything, he's extremely paranoid. He is so afraid of anything going wrong. He will do everything himself to see that it's done right. He shaves himself. He keeps the key for himself, right, for the supply room. Um, he goes out to battle even, which is 
I you can see that as kind of a noble thing, like you're willing to die with your men. But at the same time, like I think he just doesn't. He's always like right in the forefront because I don't think he trusts in anyone else's ability <laughs> to like get the job done. And he even shines his shoes for himself. Like he has so many people out there to do things for him. They're just like. He, he puts a lot of trust, actually, in Mercedes a little bit. Like, I think he puts the most trust in her out of anyone else. And maybe there's, maybe there's like, a weird relationship that happened in the past. I have no idea. But he puts a lot of trust and faith in her. Um, but that's, that's definitely what I noticed the most is he is extremely paranoid. And I wonder, was, uh, oh, what's that barber? What's that barber uh, musical? Was that a thing? Sweeney Todd. Yeah, was that a thing in the 1940s? I don't think so. Okay, never mind. Because he was so... Maybe it was. I don't know. He was... Yeah, because there's the whole scene where he's shaving himself and then he cuts his throat. I actually wanted to ask... You have no idea what that was about? I was going to ask you that, what you thought it was. I don't know. I have no idea why he would do that in the mirror. Like, I kind of want to workshop this because I, that's that's one of my biggest questions that I have to know. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Because the whole thing is like... He's looking at the stopwatch. All of his fear, I think, derives from the stopwatch and dying and not leaving um, a legacy or something for his son to be able to carry on. That's the whole point, is that he needs a son so that he can carry on the legacy. And he keeps this watch, even though he lies about it at that dinner, but he keeps this watch so that if he dies, his son will know and continue on and and know that his dad died a, died a brave man blah 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 you know yeah so but the the thing that's really that really stands out is right before he slashes his throat like in the mirror right he uh i think he looks at the watch and he's looking at the watch constantly throughout the film yeah and i just don't know if that plays into that at all if he was killing his father in that moment because he doesn't want to because he didn't seem too happy about his dad at all because when that one guy i don't remember i don't know who he is but some you know leader or whatever is talking about that story with his dad that you know he smashed his watch so that his son would know that he died at that specific time as a brave man he denies it and he doesn't say anything about his father he just says that yeah he was a good soldier that's it right he doesn't say anything about how he was as a father yeah he's very emotionally detached from his father and so that's it's that reason alone that i feel like maybe it was him killing his his father and that he's starting his own legacy i have no idea Uh, you think there's anything to that or not i mean i think that there i don't know i feel like this movie's so full of symbolism that i'm sure that does mean something but i don't know what it means yeah and I was going to ask you, I didn't really darn look much into it. I mean, I can Google it and I can try to see if people had anything to say. But is that is that what you're trying to do right now? Or are you trying to Google it? Um, I was putting it in here to see, but I don't I didn't really look very closely. But gotcha. it's interesting that you say that he has this like paranoia that's driving him. I never even really considered. I mean, I obviously noticed that he shaved himself because that's that happens frequently throughout the film. Yeah. I noticed the shoe shining, but I didn't really connect it to this idea of paranoia, which I think is a very valid interpretation. To me, what really drives Vidal is uh, pride and order, which yeah. n- not unintentionally like is very much their key components of fascism. Like, yeah, 
this idea of like national pride and also this idea of like you can put order to the human existence typically through genocide but this idea of pride and order really really motivates Vidal throughout the the movie like you see that from the very first experience we have with Vidal when Carmen and Ophelia show up and he's like looking at his his watch and is like they're 15 minutes late you know so I think that that to me the stopwatch is very symbolic as well but both Vidal and the fawn get very, very upset when they're disobeyed. Like they very much need to be obeyed and listened to and deferred to. And you even see this come up a few different times. So there's a scene where he's talking to Mercedes in his office or whatever, and he pours a drink. And then he asks Mercedes when he think when he sort of suspects her of treachery, he's like, do you think me a fool? And then when he finds out that Ophelia knew about the rebels, he asks her, like, how long have you been mocking me? And so he sees everyone else's actions as something that's negatively impacting his own ego and his own self-perception. And, I mean, he literally says that when he's about to torture Mercedes. Uh, He admits that his weakness is his ego. And so that's why I love at the end of the movie when he asks Mercedes like tell my son that I'm whatever and he just gets shot and Mercedes like your son won't even know who you are like I thought that was the perfect wrap-up to his villain story because his ego and his pride was like so important to him and he's denied that at the end and I thought that that was like just beautiful interesting yeah yeah yeah. that's that's definitely true because yeah he says uh yeah, that his pride is his biggest weakness or whatever. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And then that also in that same scene, like going back a little bit to just kind of the like the role of women, I guess, you know, back in those days, Mercedes just says, oh, like you don't pay attention to the women. Like you see, like I'm invisible to you. So that's why you didn't see this coming. Yeah. Back in those days and also under fascist regimes, right? Like even nowadays, like fascist regimes or fascist adjacent regimes very much minimize the roles of women into subservient positions and which I think is really cool that Mercedes sort of finds power in that and she's able to do the things she does because she understands like quote unquote the enemy so well yeah yeah super cool crap there was something that you said about Vidal that totally sparked up an an idea like a connection I can't remember. It was uh, the idea of obedience. Oh no, the paranoia. Because you're interested by the 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 idea that I have about like how how paranoid, and obviously that's that's a big part of it. But you seem to be landing more on like pride as this big downfall. And they say that they say that in the film, but I feel like it is paranoia. It's the fear. For me personally, I feel like that's his biggest downfall because he's just so afraid that he's going to lose everything. And to me, that kind of is. Like that idea for me is drawn by the story of the the blue rose or whatever on top of the mountaintop because you know the men spoke of fear um, and and death more than the possibility of eternal life and I felt like that was just kind of coinciding with this idea in my head that he's just he's so afraid of dying without passing passing something on to his son that he just completely lets everything else get the best of him in a way because he's not focusing on it as much. Yeah, I would say they're probably two sides of the same coin. Like because he's so concerned with his ego and his pride, it sort of feeds into and fosters that sense of paranoia. Mm. So I definitely think that they're the same thing, right? Like in a sense, because he is so afraid 
of all these things because he wants to leave a legacy and he wants to be remembered and wants to have that sense of pride. So I think it's kind of uh, the same thing, just from different approaches. Yeah, for sure. He's he's one stone-cold guy, though. He freaking kills a little child. Yeah, he (laughs) shoots a child and what a monster. He is a monster. And like no remorse, no remorse. Not at all. He just like turns away. Oh, I want to say that there was a moment where he paused. Oh, no, maybe that was because he saw all the people out <laughs> ready to kill him. I don't know. There, I think on the first watch where I'm like, oh, maybe he's going to like realize how horrible he is <laughs> or whatever. But then he kept walking and you see all the people. I'm like, oh, no, he's just he knows he's going to die right now. <laughs> and the last thing he cares about is his legacy, you know, like and he's denied it. And it's beautiful. I love it. Which um, I. Well, go ahead. Well, sorry, feeding feeding into the pride, thinking that maybe his son will somehow get his get his pride as well, and like and start his own dictatorship. I don't know, because like like he just the fact that he passes off the son and then tell him that I died a brave man, thinking that maybe that'll carry on to his son's temperament as he gets older. <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah, and the irony too is like the people that he kills are the doctor. And the doctor literally has his back turned. Like, that's a pretty cowardly thing to do, is shoot someone in the back. And the other person he kills is a literal child. Yeah. Like, the irony of him defining himself as a brave man, when, like, both of those acts of murder, bravery is not the word you would use to define it. And then Mercedes calling herself a coward when she is the one that's actually being brave like yeah just the the level of self-delusion that Vidal has that he's like a good person or that he is you know in any sense a brave man is just it's it's a ludicrous no absolutely absolutely and and we're also I think we're forgetting about the fact that he murdered a father and a son the hunters Remember that? Oh, yeah. For no reason. For no reason. He ch- he checks the backpack afterwards and sees that they actually did have rabbits. They were hunting rabbits. Yeah, which also is not an act of bravery because you literally have all of the power there. There's no bravery. It's just it's just murder. Yeah, there's like people holding them back and everything. That was that was a big defining moment for me for him. Yeah, definitely sets the tone for his character. Yeah. I wonder if it gives us a little bit of insight to his relationship with his father a little bit because what sets him off is the fact that the son says, if my father says we're hunting, we're hunting. And then that's what sets him off. And he grabs the bottle and smashes the boy's face in. Yeah, possibly. I mean, the son is very defensive and protective of his father. Yeah. And maybe Vidal feels like he never has had that relationship in his life. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. I wanted to ask you, I mean, we have t- we talked about this a little bit, but I think a really common, strong theme in this movie is like the idea of obedience. Yeah. You see that both in the fantasy realm and in the real world. I just wanted to get your like opinion or your thoughts on like that that theme of obedience and what you thought the message was and, and whatnot. Yeah, so obedience is a big part of what pushes along the idea that you should be questioning people, you know, just or authority, questioning authority. Because that's just a constant thing with... Um, Ophelia, she questions people, especially at the end with the last task. She questions the last task. Like, I'm not going to prick a baby. Like, he's innocent. That's stupid. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give up my throne and 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 walk away from this. And the Fawn's like, okay, I guess if that's what you want, you're going to die immortal. Um, and then you also see that with the doctor. That was something that I wrote down with the doctor before he, he died. When he kills that specific, you know, gorilla. The rebel. Yeah. Yeah, the rebel. 
you know, Mercy kills him, right? And Vidal comes in and notices that and is like, why would you do that? Why didn't you obey me? The doctor says to obey like that for the sake of obeying without questioning, only people like you can do that. I thought that that was, that was actually my favorite line of the entire film. I thought it was perfectly written. I thought it was amazing. And I really pull from that, just that you should be questioning authority. And even if you get an answer that's, you know, that actually goes along, it's like, okay, like now I actually see your point or whatever. You should still be asking the questions. And we brought that up in past movies. I can't remember Mm -hmm. exactly, but that you shouldn't just obey um, for the sake of obeying. Yeah, I agree with you. I would add one word to that, which is question authority responsibly. Yeah. Because I I agree with you. I don't think that we should obey for the sake of obeying, but I also don't think that we should disobey for the sake of disobeying. Like, yeah, I think that you, like you said, you need a question. And I think that you were sort of getting at that. I just wanted to make that sort of implicit component very explicit. Like we definitely should be questioning authority, but at the end of the day, sometimes we should listen to that authority. Like, you know, the CDC when they tell us that like vaccines are real and effective and sometimes we should question that authority Mm. um, and go against that authority. And I think that we just need to do it responsibly and we need to do it in the spirit of like doing what is right and not just disobeying or obeying because we like want to or don't want to. And we see that in Ophelia a lot where she obeys the fawn in a sense by doing the tasks, but she disobeys in specific ways that are like true to her character. And so I think that it's this really fine balance of like questioning authority, but doing it responsibly and doing it in a way that sort of leads to the ultimate good. But I agree with you. I love that line from the doctor. I thought that that was like a very clear line about sort of the, one of the main themes in the movie. Yeah. If I wasn't making it clear enough, I'm not necessarily, there's a difference between questioning and disobeying um, for sure. Super important difference. <laughs> I figured that's the way you were getting at, but it's also important, I think, to just like make it very clear because yeah. in our day and age, you know, people can take whatever they want. But yeah. yeah, I mean, some of my thoughts of the the obedience, I mean, you see that from the very beginning of the film, like Carmen, she steps out of the car and Vidal brings the wheelchair over and is like, hey, I want you to use a wheelchair. And she literally tells him like, but I want to walk like. I can walk. I want to walk. And he's like, do this for me. Like he immediately takes away her ability to act for herself. Like he sort of demands obedience from the very beginning. And I think it's a way of him exercising control over her. And we also, I think it's also just a commentary again of like how women are pushed into these like subservient roles under fascism and under these really like toxic structures. Um, And like you said, the doctor mercy killing the prisoner, Um, And the line about obedience for obedience sake. And then I think, too, Vidal's obsession with time is, in a sense, obedience because it's, like, very obedient to this, like, larger structure that is at play for him, this idea of, like, time and timeliness and order. So I I definitely think that obedience is um, an integral, integral theme throughout the film. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's brought up all throughout, so it makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. I have a question for you, and I think that I don't know. I feel like you probably are more well equipped to address this because you tend to focus more on like the cinematography of a film. Okay. But um like I kind of have two questions. Okay. One, is the fawn evil? That's my first question. <laughs> and then if the fawn isn't evil, why are the fawn and the fairies clearly coded cinemagraphically to look evil? 
Because I think if you just take those characters and show them to someone, we're going to be like, that's an evil person. Yeah. You know, that's an evil monster. So I guess those are my two questions. Like, do you think the Fawn is evil? And if not, why is he coded to look evil? I don't. I I kind of wrote like, is the Fawn's motive to get Ophelia to die? That's That was a question that I wrote because... And again, that kind of goes back to the fact that I only have one note about the fawn is that he's unsettling. I just don't know. <laughs> Which is a great way to describe the fawn, by the way. That's like a perfect word. <laughs> he's, he's the most unsettling character I've ever seen in my entire life. I don't know because, again, he puts on a, a face. Like he puts, or not a face, but he puts on a show like he's really caring. He's, he's there for Ophelia, but then he loses his mind a little bit. And, and gets really angry about things that maybe, well, maybe things that matter, I guess, because the fairies shouldn't have died. But I don't know, just like things that it just didn't seem like it was an appropriate response for what happened. And it's just like it kind of raised the question to me, although I don't know if that's true, if he's supposed to be kind of symbolic for Vidal. I don't think so, though. But I was just like, he kind of acts like Vidal sometimes, minus the, you know, the caring, the fake caring part, you know, where he's really talking to a child. Like, Vidal doesn't know how to talk to a child, whereas the the fawn knows how to talk to the child and be inviting and calm and collective. And, and really, even though he's a terrifying looking person, the visuals, I feel like, like, I didn't think too much about it because I think... It just seemed since most of Guillermo del Toro's creatures look the same in most of his films, I just feel like that was just the way it was. Interesting. Um, you know, like that's just the way that they were designed and he liked it and that's what he did. It's, it's very specific to his look and feel of his films. Um, although the first time that we see that bug, that first fairy come out of the the stone structure, it looks scary to me. I don't know, and maybe it's just specifically to show Ophelia's like optimistic look on things, because she definitely looks at things very optimistically. Because that bug is terrifying, but she thinks, "Oh, are you a fairy? Oh my gosh! Like I've never seen this before." Even the fairy it turns into is pretty terrifying. I know. I was actually gonna mention the same thing. I was thinking about that last night. Just like that thing is still looking, like it's still got like fangs. It looks like like it's a scary looking fairy. Yeah, and I think that there's a scene. I think it's after the completion of the first or. I think it's after the first task, maybe. But she's in like the well again, and the fawn comes out of the shadows and is like eating a slab of like raw meat, it looks like. Yeah. And then the fairy lands on the fawn's like hand or shoulder and just starts like ripping into it. And to <laughs> me, that is something that in film is like very much trying to represent this character as like evil, greedy, like overly, you know, just like overtly carnivorous to me is, is usually used to sort of indicate that some, something is evil. And I think even just the visuals, like you were saying is very much like visually, this is like giving the appearance of evil. But what's, I think is so interesting is like Ophelia is never surprised by any of these like magical happenings. Like she walks in that well and the, the fawn like turns around and it's a pretty creepy, I mean, that would be terrifying. I would book it up the stairs, dude. <laughs> but Ophelia is just like, yo man, what's up? How's it going? Like, she's just like so chill about that. She's chill about the fairy when it first pops out of the stone. And when it turns into the actual fairy for us as viewers, when the book starts like 
filling itself out. Like she just is so unfazed by this, which to me is sort of an indicator that this is all happening in her imagination because she's like expecting these things to happen. Therefore, she's not surprised by them. But I just I really liked filming wise these the fawn is coded as evil. But I think and don't quote me on this, but I think Del Toro came out and said or somebody in production said that the fawn is neutral. He's neither good nor evil. Yeah, I saw that. He doesn't care if Ophelia lives or dies. But I just really enjoy the fact that if that is like the the take on the character design, that they didn't make the character design neutral. Like they design it very much to look evil. He's like Loki. Like I think he's just mis- mischievous, right? Mis- mischievous, mischievous, mischievous. <laughs> I don't know how to say words. Uh, yeah. But I I feel like he, yeah, that 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 makes sense to me because he is so unsettling. You don't know his motives. You don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. Which again kind of goes back to the question of like maybe the underworld is real and maybe their goal is to just kind of like oh let's just let's just stir up some trouble like that's what we do here in the underworld we stir up some trouble and see what happens and and maybe people get killed along the way but hey great they'll they'll just come to the underworld with us I guess and turn into one of us or yeah like who knows like I have no idea and you can see you can see that with um, her like dying uh, vision where everything is fantastical and like really nice and like big and and shiny and and great and grand and all that stuff so again like i don't i think the actual fawn if it is real if it is a part of the underworld totally just yeah he didn't care and especially if del toro said that like he just he doesn't care either way yeah this is i want to try to i'm not sure if i have the words to like articulate this point i want to make but I feel like appearance is also a really big theme in this movie. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that I feel like Del Toro intentionally plays with the way that like evilness and goodness are stereotypically portrayed in media. I mean, we know this just from having been immersed in pop culture since we were born, but like the way that evilness and goodness are phenotypically manifested in like Disney movies or just movies in general. Like usually like bad guys are like fat or bald or, you know, whatever. And like good guys are strong and muscular. And I mean, there's also a whole component of like racism as well. That's like built into that. Luckily we've moved away from that for the most part in like modern pop culture. But like what I think is really interesting is that the fun is sort of coded as evil but del toro has said actually the fawn's neutral like this if you assume the fawn is evil because of the way the fawn looks then you are misjudging this character based on their appearance and i think too this connects a lot to the scenes of vidal shaving we get a lot of scenes of him shaving and looking at himself in the mirror and representation wise he looks neutral to me like if you showed me a picture of him i'd be like i don't know if he's a good guy i don't know if he's a bad guy Mm. like he's a very neutral character but then like the moment when mercedes disfigures him he becomes like oh that's definitely a bad guy like if you showed me like the joker right if you showed me a picture of the joker he's got those scars you know he's a bad guy like this physical disfigurement is like representation representational of his like moral moral characteristic yeah but to me sort of this the theme of appearance it, it gets to this point of like you don't have to look evil to be evil interesting 
Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I had I had a thought. The fact that you said the Joker, like once I saw once I saw the actual cut, I was just like, oh, dude, <laughs> why so serious, man? Um, like that's what that's exactly what I thought in my head. He kind of actually looks like the Jack Nicholson Joker uh, with the the way that it's cut. It's so interesting. That was that was just funny to see. But what I wanted, I did want to say this about just the physical rep- representation of like more of the fantastical creatures and stuff. It might be kind of uh, worth noting that the time period as well, because like fairy tales back in the day were really creepy and scary. For sure. And all of the Disney movies that we have are based off of terrible, terrifying stories <laughs> you know what i mean and tales and stuff like that like i think i think little mermaid actually had a terrible ending I, in in reality like what it's based off of i'm pretty sure the little mermaid actually doesn't get what she wants ursula wins or or, or maybe there's not even an ursula but like she doesn't get the prince and she ends up just dying and turning into foam or something i think that's how that whole story ends so like that might be like this representation of of the fawn and all this stuff might actually be more accurate to how maybe things were like described back in the day. I don't know. I don't read those fairy tales from back in the day because it's not uplifting at all. <laughs> <laughs> read those to your daughter and see if she can sleep at night. Yeah, for reals. I can't even believe <laughs> that parents read those to their kids. That's crazy. But yeah. maybe that's just the world that they lived in, and it was it was normal and okay, and yeah, they still saw joy in it. Yeah, and that's something that I really liked. I mean, I don't, I don't know if this idea of appearance is anything intentional because, like you said, I think that the sort of scary, creepy, unsettling character design is very much in line with Del Toro's other work as well. Yeah. But I just really like this idea of like, like I said, you don't have to look evil to be evil because. In so much pop culture, we attach your morality to your appearance. And we do this in real life as well. I sort of alluded to this earlier, but like, I mean, even thinking of the movie Dune, like the bad guy in Dune, what is he? He's fat and he's bald, right? (laughs) And like, we as a society attach so much like moral designations through people's appearance. I mean, we see that in fat phobia, right? Like we automatically assume in our culture, like fat people are lazy and fat people like don't work hard and all this different stuff. And, um, I had a professor in my undergrad who was bald and he always said that follically challenged people are misrepresented in media because they're always the bad guy, like Lex Luthor, you know? (laughs) Um, and so I just really like this because, not only in our media do we sort of rely on physical appearances to um, indicate someone's moral standing. There's like lots of like anti-Semitism, like I said, fat phobia, fo- follically challenged people. We also have those same s- sort of like moral assumptions in real life. And I really like that Del Toro doesn't necessarily rely on these like stereotypical and harmful physical characteristics to indicate um, a character's moral standing. Mm. He doesn't make his evil characters look stereotypically evil and feed into a lot of these like toxic components of our culture. And again, I think that I'm probably maybe reading into that a little bit more than Del Toro was assuming, but just coming from my own like world experiences and, and whatnot, I, I really enjoyed that, that uh, the physical components of the characters were not indicative of their moral standing and in fact may very well be contradictory to what we typically would 
um, assign someone based on what their physical appearance is. Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool that you picked up on that for sure. That's not really something that I put any any thought into uh, whatsoever, but it, I, I agree. I think it is a really cool choice. And I, yeah, again, maybe it wasn't even a choice. It's just how he does things or whatever. And it, it, he didn't put any thought into it, but he just did it. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people when they're like maybe starting to write a movie or direct a movie or something, they're, they're casting, you know, for it or, or and whatnot that they just kind of, yeah, they rely on just kind of the typical things. Okay, we need a bad guy. Fat and bald. Boom, done. Yeah, or like a lot of anti-Semitism in like the original Disney movies. Like a lot of villains were have character designs that are very much rooted in anti-Semitic physical appearances. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Ob- yeah, obviously that's something that people are getting away of or away from i don't know though necessarily because like you said dune i mean true very indicative and i i think obviously we're becoming more aware of it in pop culture that like and in 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 society in general that like your physical appearance does has absolutely no standing on what your your morals are and your you know if you're quote good or bad person but i just i really like that that he didn't really lean into that as much as you would expect especially in like a fantasy world right i also don't think that it's a coincidence that all of the fantastical creatures in this movie are very humanoid, right? Like you were talking about Harry Potter earlier and it's like in Harry Potter, you have like the basilisk and you have like the uh, giant spiders and you have the dragons and all these different things that they're not humanoid at all. Yeah. And I, I think this speaks more to Del Toro's sort of character design in general. I think a lot of his characters are very humanoid, but I really like that they're human-esque in this movie because it is very much a commentary on like good and evil. And I think that to me, it's sort of implying that humans are capable of evilness, but they're also capable of good things. And like appearance isn't necessarily a way to indicate if someone's like a quote, good or bad person or not. So I just really, I really enjoyed that take that I sort of was able to explore. Yeah. I've definitely met a human that looks like a toad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And they were probably a great person. Yeah. They're, they're hopefully, they didn't vomit up their entire insides, that's for sure. <laughs> that's good. That was a disgusting... Yeah, it was pretty gross. That was a disgusting scene. And the fact that she went in to go grab... I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have grabbed the key. No, it's done. It's done. Nah. I'm done. I would have been so traumatized, I would have forgot I was supposed to grab a key. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that goes back to how unfazed she is about most things. Like, the only thing that... She, yeah. Like, really, the only time that she's actually afraid is when it's, like, nighttime and the bug is kind of crawling through and stuff, and she doesn't want to touch her feet to the ground. That's like the only time that she's afraid, but that's because she didn't see it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. It's also like indicates her the fact that she's a literal child, right? Like every child's sort of afraid to, you know, put their feet next to the bed. You never know what's going to reach you. Yeah. She's super brave. I had a, um, I had a couple of annoyances besides Carmen, uh, just like the type of things that you yell at the screen about, you know, like, what are you doing? <laughs> like the fact that the second task had an hourglass, you know, a time limit. And yet, like immediately she turns over the time and just slowly walks through the halls. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, run, dude. <laughs> she also didn't take it with her. So it's like you don't know how much time you even have left. That yeah. was me. I was like, this timeline is doing nothing for you because you have no way to <laughs> reference it to know, Hey, I should probably hurry up. Like all it's doing is hurting you. <laughs> yeah. That was a weird, that was a weird thing. I'm like, why are you doing, why are you doing this? And then I always get really upset, not really upset, but it like really annoys me of, uh, like in any type of movie or TV show when there's a bad guy and the good guy finally has the upper hand and all they do is just like slightly wound them and then run away. And it's me like, too. I hate dude, it. 
fit like i guess i don't know what i would do in that situation because i've never killed someone so maybe it would be really hard to just kill someone but it's just like this is a horrible man you have stabbed him repeatedly why don't you finish the like why would you just cut his mouth like slit his throat what are you doing yeah i i agree i hate when we talked about this last time when i referenced lion king like as the very stereotypical like oh the bad guy the good guy has the upper hand and then they don't finish the job and then the bad guy tries to kill them type thing i hate that trope it's like bro put six bullets in that man's head and then put a seventh (laughs) one in there just to be safe yeah it's (laughs) it's so infuriating it's like that's the one flaw in mercedes that uh that i saw it's just like you didn't finish the job you dummy yeah you could have walked away well I mean, maybe they would have chased her anyway, but you probably would have gotten away. And and, and everything turned out right. She got saved in the end. But still, it's just Although, like, to be fair, I'm not sure how easy it is to kill a human being with, like, a two-inch blade. <laughs> but I think she probably could have got the job done if she had tried a little harder. Well, no one was out there watching because he sent everyone yeah. away. So she could have, yeah, she could have gotten it done, I'm sure. Yeah. Um. And then, oh, yeah. And then just, like, a small thing, like, when Ophelia pours the, the vial of, or, like, the the drop like the sleeping drops in the oh the captain's liquor you know yeah why didn't she just pour the whole bottle in i don't <laughs> she like she just puts it a few drops like oh let's make this guy sleepy <laughs> it's like okay why do you just that's right it wasn't i thought it was poison but my my tv skipped at that point and i oh. couldn't get it to go back and so i didn't know what she put in there so but you're right. Yeah, I, me- I I said that she put poison in there earlier, but it's just sleeping drops. Yeah, right? I was I was gonna correct you, but you were on a roll talking, so I was just like, oh, and then I forgot. Well, I, I stand corrected. No, it's fine. Well, the first time that I watched it, I thought it was poison as well, and then when I watched it a second time, yeah, they they have a lot of shots where she's really looking at it, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just the sleeping stuff. Weird. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, how would an 11 year old get access to poison? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why she took it in the first place. That's that's that was interesting and very forward thinking of her to even think of taking the sleeping, the sleeping drops. Um, that was that was uh, a cool subtle detail that I noticed as well. Going off of that, was um, when the funeral is being held for Carmen and the priest is talking or whatever it is. I don't know. And uh, one of the things that he says is because God, in his infinite wisdom, puts the solution in our hands, and that's perfectly synced up with her grabbing the vial in the first place. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. The solution, the sleeping solution, like the liquid. Solution, it was perfect. That's cool. So I thought that that was really cool, that they, that they the editing, they did a good job on that for sure. Yeah. And then there was another subtle detail that I thought was cool, when the captain's basically confronting Mercedes about the extra key, and he just kind of like, throws it away he knows that she's gonna run away i think at that point it's like she's probably gonna run away and we'll be able to follow her maybe to the gorillas in the first place although they don't they caught up with her way too quick but anyway he he puts on music he puts on music and it's it's like the only time we hear anything other than the soundtrack i think and um it's like happy it kind of seems like happy and celebratory like as if like hey i got her i got her and i'm gonna celebrate right now so I thought that that was a cool little thing. Interesting. Um, that I didn't really pay attention to the first time. I don't know. Is there... Like, I have some trivia things. I'm not sure if there's uh, much else that I had on my notes. Um, I mean, the I wanted to say, like, one of my favorite scenes in this, just purely from, like, a film component, yeah. was when Mercedes and Ophelia are running away and they have the umbrella. Yeah. And then she, like, lowers the umbrella 
and what was an empty forest is now filled with the guards. I thought that was like beautiful. That was such a good transition to that. Like it was just, it was done so well. I was, that's like one thing I noticed. I was like, oh, that was really impressive. I really like that. Yeah. I, well, I mean, did you, did you notice like they do that throughout the entire film? Um, like have something that's there. Yeah. Be there. Um, I think, I mean, you see that with the fawn a, a little bit. I, I don't think that I was paying very close attention. So if you have any other cool experiences, I want to hear them. Well, I mean, nothing like really in particular. Like I can't think of anything else. Like the umbrella part definitely stood out to me because I was just like, oh, they're zooming in on your umbrella. That's what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, like it, it kind of shows you that something was probably going to happen. Mm-hmm. And um, but it happens. It happens throughout the film. I It would be interesting to watch it again just to really actually keep track of it. But I, I want to say that when there's like a clear scene change, that those are the types of transitions that they do because quite like pretty much every single time there's like a tree or something and the camera pans through the tree and then it ends up going, you know, somewhere else uh, with another group of characters or maybe it's the same group of characters, but they're further along, like progressed in whatever journey that they're doing or task that they're trying to do at the, at the time. And so I thought that that was really interesting. Honestly, for me, besides the umbrella part, um, it was a little cheesy, but it was still cool. <laughs> like, experiment. Why not? I thought it was interesting at the very least. You thought the umbrella scene was cheesy? The umbrella scene was a little cheesy. All the other transitions were, like, kind of, like really cheesy. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a cool transition trick, I guess. For 2006. For 2006. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, I would have preferred a hard cut, but that's okay. Yeah, that's that's my preference, I guess. Maybe you can write to Guillermo del Toro and tell him to release a new one with the... <laughs> Austin's preferred cuts. No, he's clearly proud of this film. I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna tell him what to do. Um, also, why would he ever get an email or anything from me? Um, cool. I think I watched part of the film like during the day yesterday, and then I did, wasn't able to get to the last like half hour of it until like night. And I and I wanted to watch it without taking notes the first time. So I watched it. I watched the last thirty minutes, even though it was like really late, and I needed to get to bed. And then I watched the entire film again and took notes, which took like three and a half hours. But it was cool actually to go right from the end right to the beginning because of the way that the movie ends is Ophelia dying in the exact same position that Princess Moana. What the heck, dude? They stole that from Disney. No, just kidding. Disney stole that from them. No, I don't know. It's probably based off of something real. But anyway, <laughs> that. It's like the exact same position where Princess Moana is healing up, I guess. I don't know, because the nosebleed is like going back into her nose. Like reverses. Yeah. And then she escapes and stuff like that. And from that, like there was to me, and it's kind of said all over the place in my research that to me it was kind of, it was all, not all, but like there was a kind of a metaphor again for like or just like a visual representation of like a pre-existence life on earth and then the afterlife you know what i mean because like it's like the underworld when the princess escaped was like a pre-existence and then when she went to the world uh she lost all memory of the um underworld and then you know which is kind of like the veil or whatever they pass through the veil and now they're on earth and they die and all that stuff and then they re- they return back home which is like heaven, you know? So I thought that that was interesting. I couldn't see anything where Guillermo del Toro really like confirmed that. It just seemed to be mostly um, just everyone's interpretation of of what was going on, but it seemed pretty clear to me. I don't know. Did you think the same thing? 
No, but I also didn't watch the movie in that way. I didn't, you know. Yeah. I only watched it once and it was from the beginning to the end. Yeah. But I mean, I think that's like a pretty thematic element in a lot of maybe not just fantasy movies, but movies in general where like a character loses their memory about something really important or or whatever it may be. So I didn't I didn't really like pick up on that, but I I see what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, I want to say that there was something that I wrote specifically, but I'm not seeing it. That's okay. <laughs> it is what it is. Just because uh, one of the lines that they said, I think at the beginning, uh, when they were showing the underworld, you know, in the first like five minutes, was um, that it was a place of learning and 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 knowledge or whatever, and there was it was peace and um, no lies and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, okay. That sounds like something that I learned when I was a kid, you know, <laughs> or growing up. So that that yeah. So that was really interesting. Um, to see that specifically um any other notes i mean i feel like we've talked about a lot of different a lot of the stuff that i had on here um i just really enjoy how like the parallelism throughout the movie like you have her feeding the toad and that sort of follows into in the real world where they're having that feast you have in the real world where mercedes is bringing mail to the rebels and then in the fantasy world we have ophelia reaching into those mailbox like things to get oh the keys um we have keys that are very important in both the fantasy world and the real world so yeah i just thought it was really impressive how there's a lot of like symbolic overlap in the real world and the fantasy world but then del toro does a really good job of bringing in physical elements that also overlap and so to me it provides like a really smooth transition for the two worlds and also makes them feel a lot more cohesive than they might not have been without those sort of subtle details that help it flow into each other. So like I said at the beginning, I totally understand why like a lot of people see this as a cinematic masterpiece. And I think in a lot of ways, I very much agree with it. Like I mentioned, I don't know if it's a movie that I would necessarily want to watch again, but I love the character design. I love a lot of the storytelling components. I love that like almost everything has some sort of Sim- symbolism or something that you can pull meaning from um, and to me that's what like I've mentioned before makes great art is when you can come to it in a very specific time in your life and pull out meaning that you may not have necessarily pulled out at a different time in your life so I just overall I thought it was a very well done movie worth the 22 minute standing ovation that it got at the film festival it premiered at <laughs> i was gonna mention that that was a trivia item i was gonna run through some trivia um i should have told you that but um there's just like a few things that i that i saw but yeah i i agree and something that you touched on reminded me that um i think a, a really important factor in making this film was really just making just kind of making a representations to or like a weird representation of a real world thing that actually happened that I think Guillermo del Toro really wanted people to know about, um, you know, the dictatorship and all that stuff and just everything that Spain was going through in that time period. And that's specifically from something that I saw that, cause I don't, I'm, I guess I'm not super familiar with his, his work, but a movie that he did before this was the devil's backbone. That's the English title for it. But um, that also takes place like in the same kind of period. So like, this one is kind of a spirit like Pan's Labyrinth is a spiritual successor to that one. Oh, interesting. And kind of going along with the exact same, you know, the the Civil War and all that stuff in Spain. And so that was that was interesting and um there was kind of speculation that he might make a third movie that's a spiritual successor to all these three or all these other two 
that still has to do with that. So that'd be interesting. I would be down to watch that. That's awesome. Now I want to check out The Devil's Backbone. Guillermo del Toro passed away though, right? <gasps> no. Did he really? I think he did. Like uh, early 2010s, I thought. Are you serious? Guillermo. Maybe. Wait, no. Maybe I'm thinking of someone else now. You have me doubting it. <laughs> Let me look on Google. It'll have an end date for sure. No, it doesn't. He's alive, dude. Okay. What was I? I was just reading something where the director passed away in like, two. it was like 2012, but maybe it's not. Oh. Um, I don't know. What movies have I watched recently? Yeah, it definitely wouldn't be Guillermo because he's, since 2012, he's done uh, Shape of Water, which I'm also interested in Oh, yeah. Duh. What movie was I just reading? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, cut that out. That's embarrassing. I'm like Vidal. My ego. <laughs> I can't be wrong. <laughs> Just kidding. Cut it out. No one needs to know. No. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's run through a little bit of trivia real quick. Just because I thought it was fascinating and uh, the listeners might think it's fascinating too. Do it. Uh, the English subtitles were translated and written by Del Toro himself. Apparently with The Devil's Backbone, the subtitles were absolutely horrible and completely wrong. And so he, and along with a couple other people, wrote the subtitles for this one. Which I noticed, like I didn't look at the, the last thing that I do is look up the trivia and I do a little bit of research in other ways and, and um, like I do research and then I do the IMDB trivia just to see if there's anything else. And I was noticing because I wanted to, I wanted to write down the Rose story and I did, I'm, maybe I won't read it anymore, but cause I actually thought that that Rose story was actually really cool and well-written and um, I was just like, oh, I don't want to read all the subtitles and like write it down word for word. So I was trying to find it online and there were like three different versions of that story. And I'm just like, what the heck? Interesting. And it's like, what's going on? So I, I went back and just looked at all the subtitles because I wanted to get the one because I felt like it was written really well. And that's because Guillermo del Toro wrote it himself and it was a perfect um, subtitle version of it. So I thought that that was really cool or translation of it. He also gave up his entire salary, including back end points to see this film become realized. And uh, to this day, he believes it was worth it. I think so. I would agree. I mean, I think a lot of people would <laughs> agree with that as well. Yeah. And and then again, like realizing that Doug Jones. <laughs> Good old Dougie Jones. <laughs> Good old. Was the fawn. He doesn't know any Spanish. So he had to memorize his Spanish lines. And then he had to memorize Ophelia's lines. So he would know when to talk. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Okay. I, would, I wonder why they made him voice the characters. Well, because you got to sync up the... You got to sync up the audio to the lips. Gotcha. I, I feel like you could just, yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wonder if it's noticeable that he's not a native Spanish speaker. Oh, yeah. I don't know about noticeable. I did notice that there was a little bit of syncing issues. And I'm like, and that's when I realized that's definitely not him speaking. Or 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 that's not him speaking in the scene. That it's at, or, um, audio afterwards. So wait, wait. He So obviously he's the physical character as well yes but the the actual um like spanish is like a voiceover and he's just moving his mouth he's not actually speaking the spanish you hear he was probably saying the lines but or maybe yeah i don't know but yeah they much like darth vader they got someone else that you know voiced that character over where afterwards gotcha so he just he memorized it so he could get the the movement of the lips and stuff yeah that makes more sense because i was like that would be really weird to to watch this movie in spanish and be like this vaughn does not know how to speak (laughs) spanish like i mean i don't know maybe you could dive into some sort of representation of that 
but I was that makes more sense that he just learned how to move his mouth correctly because I was like that would be very off-putting no yeah for sure oh man I wish just like it's some eighth grade Spanish (laughs) starts speaking and you're like I cannot take this character seriously like this pronunciation this pronunciation is awful that's hilarious voice of the fawn is pablo adon <laughs> that makes a lot more sense yeah 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 which i really liked his um performance as well that the fawn was definitely like the coolest character for sure I agree. like the movements like the him shaking every once in a while and it was so cool i loved doug jones did a really good job Our, we already talked about the 22 minutes of applause that's amazing mm-hmm. that's a long time I would have been like, man, I got to pee. I gotta- <laughs> it's like a whole episode of TV. <laughs> I would have been the one guy that's walking out of the crowd to like go to the bathroom while everyone else is applauding. Um, and then you could come back and still finish the applause. <laughs> yeah, it's like, we're still going? All right. <laughs> could you imagine? <laughs> you leave because you're like, that was a really good movie. Time to go home. Yeah. Like, oh, I forgot my backpack. <laughs> <Go in there. laughs> like, what is going on? Oh, I just missed something big, apparently. <laughs> There's a there's an encore, the secret scene. Yeah, secret scene. That I'm so. <laughs> that's a weird aside. Is like I'm so. Anytime I go see a movie in the theaters now, I'm I'm so used to MCU movies that I'm like, wait, we gotta wait for the end credit scene. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, this isn't an MCU film. The worker comes in and is like, yeah, like just leave. There's nothing. There was one time where I asked the worker, I'm like, is there, is there an end credit scene? He's like, no. He's like, okay, thanks. And they're left. That's so funny. Okay. Oh, apparently it took five hours for Doug Jones to get into the Pale Man costume. Once he was in it, he had to look out the nose holes to see where he was going, which makes sense, obviously. I I mean, what if they did a whole mirror trick in his <laughs> arm so that he could see through the eyes? Probably not. <laughs> Is that thing on stilts? Because the legs were so skinny. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was going to try to make a point to look that up. Yeah, it's there's no way he was walking. He was walking just in tight that. jeans. Yeah. <laughs> or they like I did notice that and it seemed to get like really kind of distorted around his legs. So maybe they just visually reduced them. Just green screen or something. Yeah. Or yeah. After effects type thing. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Because it didn't seem too large. It didn't seem like exceptionally tall. So I would think that it's more of like a editing thing and not like a physical Yeah. That was component. That carriage was so disgusting. It reminded me of uh I don't know. I'm, I'm again, I'm not a very political person, but it reminded me of a meme. Are you thinking of the same thing? I don't know what you're going to say. It it reminded me of a meme that I saw of what's that? Mitch McConnell, I think, is that guy's. (laughs) Dude, you're cracking up. Um, Like, I remember seeing a meme where they had the Pale Man and Mitch McConnell (laughs) side by side. And they look, they really do look the exact same. I'm not going to lie. Like, even the freaking, like, saggy cheeks are. (laughs) There's, like, there's exactly three saggy cheeks (laughs) that. For both of them, it's, it's yeah. Maybe the maybe the pale man is the only time where the physical representation is indicative of the moral standing. Yeah. I don't know. It's like it makes you wonder. Like, did Guillermo del Toro take <laughs> did he take inspiration from Mitch McConnell? I don't freaking know. I'm surprised I remembered that dude's name. Okay, 
Oh, this one is a weird one. The fawn in the movie was inspired by a lucid dream Guillermo del Toro repeatedly had when he was a child. Terrifying. Every midnight, he would wake up and a fawn would gradually step out from behind a grandfather clock. Dude, F that. Like, that's terrifying, man. It was a lucid dream? Interesting. Oh. Oh, yeah, you're right. Because normally with lucid dreams, you can kind of control... Like, that to me sounds more like a night terror, but... (laughs) Because if I could control myself in a dream, I would no, no longer be in that room with that fun. Did you ever have recurring nightmares when you were a kid? Um, I have. I still have recurring themes to my nightmares. Not like the same dream over and over again, but I have a lot of themes to my interesting my dreams. Yeah, I have a lot of dreams where I, my teeth fall out. <laughs> yeah, and I have a lot of dreams where I need to do a task, and it's like in front of a lot of people, or it's really really urgent. Yeah, but I can't remember what I'm supposed to do like I have a lot of dreams it's sort of like I'm in a play and I have a I have a bunch of lines to deliver but I don't I don't know my my lines so those are kind of the two themes that I usually have dreams are such a fascinating thing like just I I I don't think that there's any like definitive meanings of what each type of dream means or something like that it would be cool to get to the bottom of it for sure though my wife would disagree with you there are specific meanings towards each thing. Um, well, I mean, like there's proven things. I don't. It depends on what you mean by proven, but there's like a ton of symbol-related work for dreams. So, like, the whole teeth falling out thing is like you don't have control over your life. I think is like one of the main themes. Your contract work. Yeah, probably. <laughs> there's like a ton of work on like dream work essentially and like what it means and like even like sort of like psychologists or therapists will say that it's like your subconscious trying to manifest itself in a certain way but if you're ever fascinated my wife will happily talk your ear off because she's like her, her her line of therapy um a lot of not a lot of people but uh some people do like dream work type stuff and she finds it really fascinating Oh, man, then we should do Inception and then get her on for a little bit to explain things. That'd be cool. Guest, uh, a guest appearance. That Yeah, that'd be cool. I have had a night terror before. Have you ever had a night terror? No, like Oof. where you, like, you wake up and you're screaming and all that stuff? No, like... Or you're screaming in your you're sleep? You're conscious, but you can't, your body, you can't move your body. Oh, I thought that was something else. Maybe not, I don't know. Oh, uh, maybe it is... I'm just thinking of like your like sleep de- sleep paralysis sleep yes, demons that's what sleep it is. Yeah, demons yeah yeah and I, when I had I've only had it once before but I like was a conscious I couldn't move my whole body and I could sense like a very evil presence at the foot of my bed and I couldn't move it was horrifying it was terrifying oh yeah that's terrifying have have you seen um, Haunting of Hill House I tried to watch it and it was too scary <laughs> dude there's there's stuff like that in that in that series for sure. You have like hallucinations and you take certain medicine, right? If I remember correctly. Oh shoot! How do you? <laughs> That's crazy. I think I remember you telling. You, I remember you telling. I mean, this is too personal for the podcast. You can get rid of it, but no, it's, I was gonna mention this. I remember you said once when we were in high school, like you took like ibuprofen or something, and like you got really big, and the house was really tiny, or vice versa, or something, or like a giant tried to come into your went <laughs> through your window. Dude, there's some creepy stuff. The the most vivid thing that I ever had when I was a kid, like really vivid. And I feel like I was actually, I feel like I was, yeah, I was hallucinating. Like, you know, like actually walking because um, I was sick, right? And I remember my mom, I took Tylenol because it's a specific um, thing in Tylenol, I think, that 
I can't remember what it's called anymore. I used to remember. I don't go to the doctor anymore, so I don't remember these things. <laughs> but I think I got out of bed or she got me out of bed because I was probably tossing and turning and stuff. And we were walking down in my old house. There's a long hallway that goes all the way from like the kitchen to like all the bedrooms. And it's like super long. And um, instead of the hallway, I was seeing pitch black on either side of me with candles all along the hallway and at the very end there was a coffin surrounded Oof, by candles that's terrible and I'm, yeah dude and my mom's like walking me to it and i remember very like vividly feeling like she's gonna kill me right now <laughs> like like i was walking to my death that's and scary that's, and then all i remember up to is when we got to the coffin and then i don't remember anything after that but i've carried that with me maybe you've been dead ever since then oh shoot dude i'm in the underworld maybe you're a ghost I need to escape the underworld. Um, then you're you're the one that's you're Ophelia. You're like hallucinating me right now. No, you're just your your wife is like, who is he talking to right now? <laughs> oh yeah, Guillermo del Toro's uh, first started writing ideas for this film in 1993, the year I was born. Interesting. That's a long time. There's so many films that like were under. The writing process over like a decade. So 13 years, yeah, if it came out in 2006. That's a long time. Like, that's hard to like hold on to an idea for that long. That's awesome. Yeah. Kudos to him for going through. Oh, this is interesting. Okay, so although audiences have interpreted the film's bittersweet ending as everything from a religious metaphor to a physiological allegory, Guillermo del Toro offers a simpler but more poetic explanation. I always think of that beautiful quote by Soren Kierkegaard, I don't know, that says the tyrant's reign ends with his death, but the martyr's reign starts with his death. I think that is the essence of the movie. It's about living forever by choosing how you die, which in a way Ophelia chooses how she dies. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's actually something I saw where like, I think Del Toro was talking about the idea of like immortality and for Ophelia, immortality isn't living forever. Immortality is like knowing that she became the person she was supposed to be before mm. she died or something like that. So that that very much sounds in line with other stuff that Del Toro has said. Yeah, because like you could you could look at all the tasks as well, actually no, this is exactly what the fun the point of it. We needed to prove that you're not immortal or you know, mm -hmm. right? So um the fact that she took the grapes was a mortal thing like oh you were hungry you took the grapes you couldn't help it so that's why you can't come back home because you're immortal and then but but then at the very end the 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 big test is like yeah to save your own or to to see your own immortality you would sacrifice the life of another but she refused to do that so that proves that she's not immortal or whatever so that that is a very interesting thing that they kind of carry throughout and then dying on your own terms like you also have like everyone's dying on their own terms they're all fighting you know to protect their country or protect their people and i'm mainly speaking about the gorillas but <laughs> and then also that one gorilla who who he asked the doctor to kill him also dies on his own terms like i'm not gonna let this it's true this psychopath kill me yeah the last thing we already talked about is that the underworld being real is up for interpretation which is still is very fascinating to me cool overall really great film loved the aesthetic of it loved the the creature design like very cool yeah i think i liked it maybe a little more than you i would be willing to watch it again for sure but uh i guess you're not i guess you don't care you're done yeah i i don't watch movies over 
and over again. Yeah. Often it takes a lot for me to watch a movie over, mm. but, um, I just, I mean, I really enjoyed it. And like I said, I think that people who have a lived experience that's closer to sort of the source realm of the allegories, like the Spanish civil war, it's probably more meaningful, but I still thought it was like a beautiful piece of art for sure. Awesome. Yep. I agree. Well done del Toro. All right, cool. Well, that ends this episode of Layers of Film on Pan's Labyrinth or El Labyrinto del Fauno, right? Beautiful. I don't, I don't speak Spanish, so. That was something that confused me for a second. I'm like, wait, who's Pan in this? Like, who's Pan? <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, what's going on? And then, and uh, again, I'm ignorant, so that's like a deity or whatever uh, that, I, that I didn't really, I've, I don't think about too often. Like if I don't think of something actively, I push it out of my mind forever. So, <laughs> so I just wasn't really thinking about that. I've definitely heard that before, but I was just like, yeah, who's, who's Pan? And then when I looked at the title, <laughs> like in Spanish or whatever, I'm like, oh, it's Fauno. So they're not even talking about Pan. They just did that because yeah, the specific countries or whatever that they were releasing them in, like us germany whatever i can't remember what all they said it'll be easier for them to understand i guess i don't know yeah the fawn's labyrinth doesn't sound as exciting <laughs> well that that yeah that ends it <laughs> officially now great film uh give it a chance if you haven't already again it's streaming on netflix um i don't know why you'd listen to the whole episode if you hadn't watched it but i know that there are people out there that do but our next film i've chosen i still i haven't you didn't ask me about it so i didn't even tell you oh i thought you wanted to wait to tell me oh no i want to know what it is i'm excited to hear i don't know if you've seen this because i've never talked about this movie with you before whiplash have you seen this film nope yes so I don't think so. I don't even I don't think I've even heard of it before. So I wanted to wait longer, but this is I just couldn't help it anymore. This is my favorite movie of all time. It's it's a masterpiece. I think it's amazing. Uh, Whiplash uh, released in 2014, directed by Damien Chazelle. This film is also rated R. <laughs> all the great films are rated R, dude. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Sad news. It's not a vi- I just I couldn't help it. OK, Big T. It's, it's only available to like rent or buy. So that's fine. <laughs> okay, cool. I, I already own it. I'll just, I'll just Venmo you the, my money request <laughs> at the end of the year. Oh yeah, sure. Um, yeah, it's a company write off or whatever. Um, <laughs> but fantastic film. It's, um, it's about like a drummer who is obsessed with the idea of being the greatest drummer in the world. And, um, his complicated relationship with his like band director, I guess. Oh, I was thinking drummer like marching band, like drumline. No, no. The Nick Cannon film, Drumline. We will never cover that (laughs) (laughs) I've seen that film twice, and uh, that's because it was the only thing on TV. Uh, (laughs) But it's a great film, honestly. I think it's amazing. Plus, the, the the newest episode um, will go, or sorry, that episode will go up on the third of January. So right at the new year. And I feel like, you know, people have new year's, new year's goals and stuff like that. And this is a story a really complicated story about a kid trying to be, you know, great. Is it based on a true story? Kind of. So Damien Chazelle, I mean, obviously we'll get more into it in the episode, but Damien Chazelle was in a band with a, um, with a similar experience. He wasn't the drummer, but he had a similar experience as this gotcha. as this main character played by. So inspired by true events. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> anyway, I'm really excited about it. 
about it um i again it's my favorite movie of all time the more i think about it the more i just can't help but think like this is a brilliant film so i'm excited get ready for it again it's only it's only available to rent or buy and um if you have problems with radar films or maybe you're picky and choosy about what you're willing to see go check out the parents guide on imdb yeah but with that that's going to be the end of the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, share it with your friends. I guess you can rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. And uh, if you want to have any input in the episode, you can write into layersoffilmpod at gmail.com. And uh, we will look it over and, and read it if it's worthy of it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Spoiler alert, it will be. It will be. Aww. But yeah, thanks so much for listening. And we will catch you next month. Adios. Thank you.